Back in the day, there was this giant of a black marshal working out of Indian territory by the name of Bass Reeves. Chances are, if Bass was on your trail, he'd find you. And the smartest thing a man could do at that point was just surrender and hope for a good lawyer. Ah, but outlaws ain't the most intelligent of creatures, and they damn sure ain't invincible. Just ask noted killer and horse thief Tom Story. Bass tracked Story all the way down to the Red and caught him trying to flee back into Texas with a pair of stolen mules. Marshal Reeves ordered Tom to throw his hands up, and, well, I guess Story was feeling lucky. He went for his pistol, and according to Bass, quote, right then and there, Tom Story committed suicide, end quote. Make no mistake about it, the exploits of Bass Reeves are legendary. Described in the papers of his day as a holy terror and one of the greatest manhunters to ever grace the territory, Bass served as a deputy United States Marshal for over three decades, routinely traveling into no man's land and returning with wagon loads of prisoners. But not everyone came on their own accord. There was always a few like Tom Story, and Bass Reeves left many an unmarked grave in his wake. Said to have arrested over 3,000 criminals and killed over a dozen men in the line of duty, Reeves was not only one of the most effective lawmen of the Old West, but also one of the most deadly. To quote historian Art Burton, To me, Bass Reeves is the greatest frontier hero in American history, bar none. I don't know who you could compare him to. This guy walked into the valley of death every day for 32 years and came out alive. But who was Bass Reeves, really? What kind of a man was he? Where did he come from? Did he really inspire the Lone Ranger? And how the hell does a mere mortal grow such an amazing mustache? My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Bass Reeves was born into slavery in Crawford County, Arkansas in the summer of 1838. He and his family were owned by farmer William S. Reeves, who in 1846 moved everyone down to Grayson County, Texas, just south of the Red River. It's there young Bass worked out in the fields alongside his parents as a water boy until he grew older and was given the additional duties of caring for horses and assisting the blacksmith. And somewhere in his teens, Bass was selected to be his quote-unquote master's companion, his master being George Reeves, the son of the aforementioned William. Now, this was a much more cushy job compared to that of your average slave laboring out in the fields, but make no mistake about it, Bass was still considered not much more than a piece of property. As a so-called companion, he would serve as a mixture of George's coachman, valet, butler, and even bodyguard. Worth pointing out that George Reeves at this time was both tax collector and sheriff for Grayson County. Slave status notwithstanding, one can only assume that this was quite the learning experience for young Bass. Speaking of learning, it was also around this period that Bass asked George for permission to learn how to read. This request was denied and instead George allowed Bass to learn how to handle a firearm. And well, the rest is history. It really goes to show the power of an education though. They were more scared of a black man who could read than they were of one wielding a gun. And I think that's saying something. As it turns out, Bass got so damn good with them guns that George routinely entered the young man into shooting contest, profiting from the prize money while doing so. Legend has it that years later, Bass would be banned from participating in turkey shoots just as an attempt to let others have a fighting chance. Now, when the Civil War broke out, George Reeves was commissioned as a colonel in the 11th Texas Cavalry. And when the regiment rode off to fight the Yankees, Bass was right there with them in the capacity of a body servant. 
A body servant, by the way, is just a term used to describe the slaves who serve soldiers in the field, oftentimes taking care of their horses and gear and just handling camp chores. This is a long tradition, and even George Washington had a body servant during the American Revolution. I have not seen the movie Hell on the Border, based on the life of Bass Reeves, so I don't know how they portray this particular period. And as of this recording, the new miniseries Lawman, Bass Reeves, has not yet been released. That said, in the trailer for Lawman, there's a split second there where it looks like Bass is dressed in Confederate gray and riding into battle. So I'm not really sure how they're going to play it, but I will say, from a historical perspective, there is no indication that Bass ever fought on the side of the rebels, or even accompanied George into the thick of things. Matter of fact, there's not a whole hell of a lot known about this point in Bass's life, up to and including how long he rode with the 11th Texas. All we know for certain is that at some point Bass made a run for it, fleeing bondage and finding refuge over in Indian territory. There are different stories as to how this all went down, but one of the most prevalent is that Bass and George got into an altercation while playing cards and things turned physical. Years later, Bass's own daughter, Alice, would state that Bass, quote, laid him, George, out cold with his fist and then made a run for the Indian Territory with the hue and cry of runaway N-word hounding him up until emancipation, end quote. As for where and when this happened, nobody knows for sure. Bass himself claimed to have been with the Confederates at the battles of Pea Ridge, Chickamauga, and Missionary Ridge, and even said that he personally witnessed the death of General Ben McCulloch in March of 1862. This doesn't necessarily jive with the stories passed down through the family, though. Bass's great-nephew, the Honorable Judge Paul Brady, asserted that Bass defected and fought against the Confederacy, alongside the Creek and Seminole, in the Battle of Chustin Law, which occurred very early in the war in December of 1861. Still others think that Bass served as a sergeant in the Union Army, but that has not yet been verified. Like I said, man, this period of the future lawman's life is murky at best when it comes to particulars. For a fact, Bass departed Texas with the 11th Cav, and that regiment did engage abolitionist forces in present-day Oklahoma. And yeah, somewhere along the line, Bass made his big break for freedom. It's believed by most that he hid out in the territory for a spell, likely in very close proximity with the Creek and Seminole peoples, as he would learn to speak their language and pick up more than a few indigenous skills that would serve him well in the years to come. And somewhere along the way, Bass got hitched to a lady by the name of Jenny, by June of 1870, things clear up a bit and we find Bass, now using the surname of his former owner, Reeves, once more living in the place of his birth, Crawford County, Arkansas, with wife Jenny and their four children, Sarah, Robert, Harriet, and Georgia. So yeah, we may not know exactly what Bass was up to for a good chunk of the 1860s, other than learning the lay of the land and the way of the Seminole, but it does appear that a whole hell of a lot of baby making was involved. And I mean, come on, have you ever seen a photo of Bass Reeves? Guy had a mustache the most men can only dream of, the kind that'll put even Steve Harvey to shame. I'll tell you what, you take Steve Harvey, Tom Selleck, and Sam Elliott, combine all their mustaches together, sprinkle on a little testosterone, and you're still not quite at the Bass Reeves level of lip toupee. Of course Bass Reeves was making babies, you crazy? It is literally impossible to have a luscious taint tickler like that growing underneath your nose without occasionally impregnating someone. Hell, I wouldn't be surprised if a few women got baby bumps just by looking at his mustache. And those four children in 1870 were just the start, as seven more would follow in the years to come. Now, in 1870, Bass was working as a farmer, but soon began making money on the side as a scout and tracker for the U.S. Marshals out of Van Buren, Arkansas, putting all that Indian Territory know-how his to use. 
This wouldn't turn into a full-time gig until 1875 when Judge Isaac Parker, a.k.a. the Hanging Judge, took to the bench there in neighboring Fort Smith. Back in them days, all of Indian Territory was under Parker's federal jurisdiction, and the men he deputized, one of whom was our very own Bass Reeves, were tasked with heading into no man's land and chasing down some of the rankest outlaws who ever set a saddle. And just in case there are some new listeners, let me just take a moment to describe Indian Territory during this period. You've heard of the Trail of Tears, right? Long story short, 1830, the U.S. Congress passed something known as the Indian Removal Act. And starting the following year, several thousand members of the so-called five civilized tribes, the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, and Seminole, would be forcibly relocated to what we now call Oklahoma. But back then, it was simply known as the Indian Territory. As time went on, other tribes were sent there as well. The Pawnee, Kickapoo, Sauk and Fox, Shawnee, even faraway people like the Iroquois and Seneca. And that's just really a drop in the bucket. For the next few decades, the federal government would continue shoving natives down there in the territory. I think all total, it was something like 60 tribes. And I guess officials figured they was out of sight and out of mind. Now, these displaced tribes did have their own laws and courts and policemen, but their jurisdiction was limited to tribal members who committed crimes against their fellow tribesmen. In other words, if you were not a Native American, or if you were and just not robbing and killing your own, then you could pretty much do as you pleased without any fear of legal repercussions. Didn't take long for word to spread, and in the years following the Civil War, Indian Territory would become an absolute haven for outlaws, bandits, rustlers, whiskey peddlers, and ne'er-do-wells of all shapes, stripes, and ethnicities. The popular saying in them days was there was no Sunday west of St. Louis and no God west of Fort Smith. This area was so wild that even as late as 1888, it was estimated that only a quarter of the white people living in the territory were law-abiding. This is where that federal court of Judge Parker's came into play. His deputy marshals were tasked with the nearly impossible job of keeping the peace west of Fort Smith, Arkansas. If you've ever seen the movie True Grit, this is the job that Rooster Cogburn was doing. And if you've never seen True Grit, bro, go do yourself a damn favor, okay? Take your pick, either version. I think the original with John Wayne is a classic, and the Coen Brother remake with Jeff Bridges is, in my opinion, a masterpiece. Just like Rooster Cogburn, Bass Reeves, and the other real-life deputies would hang around Fort Smith until they got them a stack of warrants, and then head west out into the territory in search of bad guys. If successful, the deputies would haul their prisoners back, oftentimes testifying in Judge Parker's court while doing so, and then receive a reward for each criminal apprehended, along with being compensated for money spent feeding prisoners and mileage traveled. Now, if this job sounds like something that a bounty hunter would do, you're kinda on the right track. Truth is, bounty hunters, as we like to think of them in regard to the Old West, did not really exist, at least not in the sense of a lone vigilante roaming from town to town and making a living taking outlaws dead or alive. Don't get me wrong, that did happen, but it was deputies like Bass Reeves doing the bulk of the work, not civilians. Hell, a lot of the time, sheriff's deputies or even town constables would moonlight as deputy marshals in order to go after wanted men outside their jurisdiction, as well as making a little extra income. And to give you an idea of how dangerous this was, in just the two decades that Isaac Parker was judge, somewhere between 75 to 100 deputy marshals were killed in the line of duty. Out of all the over 300 deputies killed since the inception of the Marshals Agency, a third of them perished there in the territory. I'll drop a link in this episode's description, but I actually checked out the official USMarshal.gov roll call of honor, where they list the name of each officer who's died in the line of duty. And it's surreal just scrolling and seeing how many were violently killed in Oklahoma in the 19th century. 
There was even something known as the Deadline, marked by railroad tracks about 80 miles west of Fort Smith. Travel up to that point was relatively safe, but you go across that threshold and your life expectancy just shrank by quite a bit. Outlaws would often leave notes at the line, calling deputies like Bass Reeves out by name and saying that they was dead men walking if they continued to advance. Suffice it to say, this was not the safest of workplace environments, particularly if you were wearing a badge. If a deputy wanted to make it home alive, he'd have to be able to outfight and outsmart his opponents, two areas in which Bass Reeves absolutely excelled. Not only did he learn how to ride in a way that made him look much smaller in the saddle than he actually was, but Bass also traveled undercover, oftentimes taking on the appearance of a simple farmhand, a cowboy, circuit preacher, or sometimes even an outlaw. There's a famous story of him showing up at a cabin one day, on foot, looking all raggedy in tattered clothing and asking for a place to rest. Now Bass knew the men he was looking for were nearby. It was their mama's cabin, and if anybody realized his true identity, there'd be hell to pay. As it turns out, they fell for the ruse and even asked him to join up with their little outlaw gang. Reeves accepted this invitation, and that very night, while the fugitives were fast asleep, he carefully handcuffed the both of them without so much as interrupting their slumber. Next morning, Bass kicked the astonished bandits awake and marched them all 28 miles back to his wagon. Word has it that their mother followed for the first few miles, cursing Reeves every step along the way. Worth pointing out, though, that these were not solo ventures. Even though Bass did make that arrest all alone, there was a posse waiting for him back at the wagon. And this was actually mandated by law. These deputy marshals, when venturing into the territory, per protocol, had to bring at least one man along with them. Sometimes these were trackers, Bass often utilized Native American scouts, and sometimes they were fellow deputies. Depending on the job, Bass would often take along several additional men, including guards, a cook, and a wagon or wagons to haul supplies and prisoners. Not only would these wagons serve as a headquarters while out in the field, but they also worked as a makeshift jail for whatever criminals he happened to catch. Now, if you're imagining a wagon with bars on it, sort of like a fortified jail cell on wheels, as is sometimes portrayed in the movies, this was not the case. These were normal supply wagons that had been fashioned with a long chain that the prisoners would be secured to. More often than not, these captured men would have to walk behind the wagons, unless, by a stroke of good luck, there was extra room inside. And it was in such a fashion that Deputy Reeves would routinely return to Fort Smith with a dozen or more prisoners. The most I was able to find of him arrested in one hall was 17 men, which netted around $900 or $30,000 in today's money. Definitely not a bad payday. Now, it's often said that Bass Reeves was the first black lawman west of the Mississippi, and as it turns out, this is not true. Records show that there was another black deputy by the name of Smith who led a posse out of Van Buren as early as 1867. Then there's Bynum Colbert, a Choctaw freedman who was sworn in at Fort Smith as a deputy marshal some three years before Bass was. Still, though, Reeves was one of the first, and he most certainly became the most prolific. Although there would be even more black deputies in the years to come, the vast majority of them didn't get hired on until after 1890, and one can only assume that Bass played a very large part in paving the way. Interestingly enough, about the same time that Bass got the job as a deputy, he was also arrested and brought up on charges of assault with intent to kill. I have no idea what the details of the case were. These appeared to be completely lost to history. But whatever Bass did or did not do, the jury would find him not guilty in September of 1875. As you'll soon hear, this would not be the last time Reeves found himself running afoul of the law. 
Now, Bass was not a small man. He stood around six foot two inches tall, and his most striking feature, other than that mustache, something I found numerous references to, were his hands. Per author D.C. Gideon, who interviewed Reeves in person around the turn of the century, quote, his long muscular arms have attached to them a pair of hands that would do credit to a giant, and they handle a revolver with the ease and grace acquired only after years of practice, end quote. Another Oklahoma old-timer also described Bass as being a very big man who told jokes, was full of life, and wore a large black hat. Even Reeves himself admitted to needing a certain type of horse to accommodate his large frame, saying, When you get as big as me, a small horse is as worthless as a preacher in a whiskey joint fight. Now, like I said, Bass would first pin on a badge in 1875, and he would work in law enforcement in some capacity for over the next three decades, damn near up till the time of his death. And believe me when I say Bass Reeves was an extremely active deputy U.S. Marshal. One source I leaned on heavily while doing research was the book Black Gun, Silver Star by Art T. Burton. And if you're interested in learning more about the real Bass Reeves, I strongly suggest picking up a copy. Link in this episode's description. In Black Gun, Mr. Burton meticulously lays out numerous arrests and gunfights that Bass was involved in, oftentimes using court documents and even Reeves' own correspondence with the Marshal Service as evidence. And holy shit, I don't know how many men Bass Reeves arrested over the course of his career, but it had to have been in the thousands. At least one newspaper article published while Bass was still alive listed the number at over 3,000. And from what I read in Black Gun, I do not doubt it. Furthermore, there are numerous sources claiming that Reeves killed somewhere between 14 to 20 men in the line of duty. If those numbers are true, and we will take a closer look here in a bit, but that would mean that Bass was not only one of the most effective lawmen of the 19th century, but also one of the deadliest, if not the deadliest. With that in mind, there's just no way we could possibly go over each and every one of Bass Reeves' exploits here today. Once again, check out Mr. Burton's book for all the gritty details. Black Gun, Silver Star. And it really is mind-boggling how Reeves was just nonstop, month after month, year after year, making all these trips into the territory and constantly returning with wagon loads of prisoners. That said, we will discuss a few of the more exciting stories, like when Reeves faced down the murderous Brunter brothers and came out on top even after they got the drop on him. At the time, Bass wasn't even after them. He was chasing someone else entirely, but before he knew it, here comes all three of them Brunters, pistols drawn and pointed straight at him. Old Bass didn't so much as blink an eye. Cool as a damn cucumber, he fishes out the warrant he held on him and asked what day it was. Said he needed to jot down the date of arrest for the court records. This momentarily took the bandits by surprise, and they began laughing at Reeves' boldness, which, as it turns out, was all the distraction the lawman needed. Quick as lightning, Bass whips out a pistol of his own and shot two of them deader in hell before taking the third brother into custody. For what it's worth, I did find another version that had Reeves killing all three men. There were a lot of newspapers back in those days, and you know how that goes. They don't always report things accurately. Also, more than a few of the stories we have about Bass were passed down through family members. As such, I did, at times, have a very hard time separating fact from fiction. It seems like most of these stories do originate in truth, but there's a few details that are questionable. A great example is the time the Bass went after a murderous cowboy by the name of Jim Webb. Originally from Texas, Webb was a ranch foreman and apparently one tough son of a bitch, in addition to being a little on the trigger-happy side. After Jim gunned down his neighbor, who just so happened to be a minister, a warrant was issued and it wasn't long before Bass came looking to collect. 
As tended to be his habit, Reeves was in disguise. He and his fellow posse man showed up at Webb's place, looking like they was down and out cowboys in search of a meal. The only thing was, despite inviting Bass and his deputy to light and set, Jim Webb wasn't letting his guard down none. In fact, he and his buddy, Frank Smith, both had their revolvers in their hands. Not aiming them or anything like that, like the Brunter brothers had been, but they was certainly at the ready. So Bass started talking, pretty much just flapping his gums nonstop about anything and everything with the hopes of distracting Webb long enough to take him down. This went on for the entire mill, and even afterwards, as the men retired to a bench outside of the kitchen. Finally, not sure what it was, but something did catch Webb's attention, causing him to turn just for a second, and that was when Bass pounced, knocking the gun away with one hand while wrapping the other around Webb's throat. Of course, Webb's buddy Smith still had his gun and was even able to get off a couple of shots before Reeves was able to shuck his own revolver, and while still clutching Jim Webb by the throat, spin around and put a bullet straight into Smith's belly. He'd die shortly thereafter, and Webb, after spending nearly a year in jail, was released on bond and skipped straight back to the territory. So once more, Bass was on the hunt, found Webb in a general store over in the Chickasaw Nation, and they began trading bullets damn near on sight. This is where things get a little sketchy. One of Webb's rounds cut through Bass's saddle horn, another shredded the reins in his hands, as well as his hat, and yet another tore a button off of Bass's shirt. Needless to say, Reeves didn't waste no time in spilling out the saddle and returning fire of his own, allegedly dropping Webb with two rifle rounds at a distance of 500 yards. Story goes that as Jim Webb lay dying, he shook Bass's hand. Now, while there doesn't seem to be any question that Bass did indeed kill Jim Webb, I gotta imagine there's a little poetic license involved here, especially with him making a kill shot at 500 yards. Look, I know it's not a scientific impossibility, but come on, man, that's a long-ass way to shoot with open sights. Especially freehand, and most especially when your target's shooting right back at you. And while I can't say for certain what type of rifle Bass was using on this occasion, he did seem partial to carrying a Winchester chambered in 4440. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not all that certain that a 4440 fired from a carbine is even effective out to 500 yards. Oftentimes these stories, not just with Bass, but most nearly everybody from the Old West, are blown out of proportion. We know Reeves shot and killed Webb's partner Smith. And we also know that a year later, Bass killed Webb. There were witnesses. This was reported on in the papers. It did happen. All I'm saying is maybe it was more like 200 yards as opposed to 500. Now this gunfight went down in July of 1884. And then just a month later, Reeves had yet another close call. The August 28th edition of the Muskogee Indian Journal described the incident as follows. Bass Reeves' last trip had an experience that came near to cutting short his usefulness and did send one man where he won't fool with other people's horses. He, Bass, had warrants for two men, Frank Buck and John Bruner. While up the Canadian looking for prisoners, he came on these men but did not know them. He inquired for other parties whom he was after, and Buck and Bruner volunteered to guide him. At noon, all parties camped, and while they were getting dinner, he, Bass, noticed Bruner stealthily pulling his pistol. Suspecting something, Reeves stepped behind his horse and around to the front of Bruner and grabbed his pistol before he had time to use it, and at the same time pulled his own. Glancing over his shoulder, Buck was seen getting out his weapon, when quick as a flash, Reeves, still holding Bruner's pistol in one hand, threw over his other and shot Buck dead. Bruner was then secured and is now on his way to Fort Smith where he will have to answer to a double charge. 
Once again, Bass is displaying an ability to take on multiple opponents at once, grabbing a hold to one while shooting the other. If these claims are true, not only did Reeves have two giant bowling ball-sized testicles, but he also must have been insanely fast, able to get up close and strike before anybody knew what hit him. And as we'll discuss toward the end of this episode, there's a possibility that that athleticism and the quick reflexes that come with being a pro athlete continue to run in the Reeves family even to this day. Now, Bass never did learn how to read or write, which is interesting considering that a good deal of his job entailed deciphering names on arrest warrants. This was somewhat circumvented by Reeves studying each subpoena closely after having someone read it to him memorizing distinguishable marks or shapes, and connected them with whatever name they was for. For example, maybe the arrest warrant or subpoena for John Doe had a certain ink blot on the left corner of the page. Bass would commit that little detail to memory, and when he inevitably ran into John Doe out in the territory, he would know exactly which piece of paper to pull out his saddlebags. And sometimes he had no choice but to make the prisoners read their own warrants out loud, just to make sure. If they also were illiterate, Bass would force them to travel along until they came upon somebody who could read. More than one angry criminal was dragged dozens upon dozens of miles while Bass Reeves searched for someone who knew the ABCs. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows and heroics, though. In 1884, Bass got a little too lax around camp and fatally shot one of his own men. They were out in the territory, per usual, with a wagon full of prisoners when Reeves' rifle accidentally discharged and sent around through the neck of camp cook, William Leach. At least that's what Bass claimed happened. A doctor was sent for, but by the time Leach got access to proper care, it was too late, and he passed on to the other side. Initially, there was no blowback, and Bass just went on doing his thing, but soon enough, the marshal overseeing his district was replaced with a former Confederate officer who wasn't quite so understanding. So it were that nearly two years later, in January of 1886, Bass Reeves was indicted for first-degree murder and locked up in Fort Smith the same damn jail that he himself had placed many an outlaw in. By the way, this jail, by all accounts, was just a pure hell on earth. It was in the basement of the federal courthouse, just one large room with everyone stuck together, extremely overcrowded, no individual cells, no ventilation, and the only light was what filtered through the underground windows. In an attempt to make the stale air more breathable, guards would regularly wet down the stone floor, but this just caused everything to mold over, including the scant bedding afforded to prisoners. They were rarely allowed to bathe and never received any clothing other than what they had on them when they got locked up. The stench was so bad that it even stuck up George Parker's courtroom, which they tried to mitigate with fresh sawdust. I was not able to ascertain whether or not Bass was stuck in there with the other prisoners or if him being a deputy meant that he had better accommodations. But if he was in gin pop, damn, that just makes this man all the more impressive. There's no way in hell he could have been locked up with dozens of the territory's worst offenders without at least a few of them making a move. And well, let's just say that Bass Reeves walked out of that jail on his own damn two feet. But the question still remains, why charge a respected lawman with murder for what was clearly an accident? I could see maybe second-degree manslaughter or something like that, but murder for an accidental discharge? It just doesn't add up, right? Well, as it turns out, the situation wasn't as cut and dry as it initially seemed. And not everybody was convinced that it was truly an accident. First of all, let's address the puppy dog story. You may have already heard this, and I myself have repeated it in the past. Rumor has it that Bass shot the cook, William Leach, after Leach purposely killed an innocent little puppy that Reeves had taken a liking to. And the way Leach killed the dog was beyond barbaric. He took a kettle with hot grease and poured it down the poor pup's throat. 
prompting an enraged bass to lift his rifle and blast the son of a bitch straight to hell. And if that really happened, then I gotta admit my first instinct is that the cook had it coming. I also think many of us would react in a similar fashion. But as it turns out, nothing of the sort occurred. And no, this was not just another one of my stories in an attempt to get your blood pressure up. Apparently, this rumor was being passed about when Bass was arrested. And you can even find news articles repeating it for years to come, even after his death. I do not know where it originated, but the truth is, it was almost the exact opposite, with Bass being the one advocating for the puppy to be put down. And we know this thanks to the great Art T. Burton and his book, which I will keep mentioning, Black Gun, Silver Star. Mr. Burton shares the court transcripts, including the testimony of Bass Reeves, his nephew, who was a member of the posse, one of the prisoners, and even the prisoner's wife. They all took the stand, and although they don't agree on everything, it is very obvious that Bass and Leach were quarreling about that damn dog. Reeves said he didn't want it in camp. I guess Leach was letting the puppy lick one of the skillets they used for cooking dinner, and when Bass threatened to kill the dog, Leach said that he was going to kill Bass's horse, at which point the rifle that Reeves was holding air quotes, accidentally, went off. As damning as that sounds, there is more involved. First of all, depending on whose testimony you believe, it's very hard to tell if Bass and Leach were just joking, you know, talking shit like guys tend to do, or if they were really about to go at it. Also, they may or may not have been previously arguing as to the quality of Leach's cooking. That said, all of the witnesses were in agreement that Bass had been sitting down, working on his rifle, right up to the point of it being discharged. He had gotten a 45 caliber round stuck in the chamber of a rifle that did not shoot 45 caliber bullets and was trying to dislodge it with his pocket knife. This was backed up by Reeves' own testimony during which he said the killing was not intentional. And in the end, I guess the jury believed him. Most of the prosecutor's witnesses had been arrested by Reeves in the past, bringing their impartiality into question, and according to everyone present, Bass did immediately attempt to render aid to Leach, even tried to fetch a doctor. What's more, everybody there at Fort Smith knew just how deadly Reeves was with both pistol and rifle. If he had wanted to kill Leach, he could have shot him dead instantly instead of a neck wound, which might not have proved fatal. And finally, there's the fact that Bass made no attempt to flee in the years leading up to his arrest and instead continued to faithfully fulfill his duties as a deputy marshal. I don't know if any of them jurors were on the fence, but at the very least, they did not seem to think that Bass was guilty beyond all reasonable doubt. And as such, he was acquitted. Also, there's no evidence proving this, but I wouldn't be surprised if Judge Parker may have even had a little sway on that jury's decision. He and Bass were said to have been close, or at very least had a very close working relationship. Now, real quick about that jammed up rifle, I'm no expert when it comes to Old West firearms, but I did ask around and Snapper from YouTube's Snapper Antique Firearms Unlimited was kind enough to film a video recreating Bass's dilemma. Snapper has himself a genuine 1873 Winchester 4440, same type of rifle that Bass Reeves had, and he filmed himself shooting his cousin Cletus in the neck. Sure enough, it was not a fatal shot initially. They were able to slap some galls on the wound and call 911. But had they been out in the territory like Bass Reeves was, there was a very good chance old Cletus would have bled out. Uh, no, that's not true. Actually, Snapper did film a video, but he demonstrated how easy it would be to accidentally load a 45 round into a 4440 Winchester, if you're not paying attention. The problem is, once you go to lever the bullet into the chamber, it'll get stuck. And that's what Bass was dealing with when that rifle went off and shot Leech. It's a pretty cool video, not very long. I will link to it in the description. 
And if you're at all interested in Old West guns, please subscribe to Snapper's channel. Really good stuff. That's Snapper's Antique Firearms Unlimited on YouTube. Him, Duke Frazier, and the boys over at 11 Bang Bang are my go-to authorities when it comes to period firearms. Now, even though Reeves was found not guilty, this entire ordeal was a devastating blow to the man's finances. Bass would linger behind bars for six long months, waiting for the trial, unable to work, and ended up having to sell the family home in order to pay off his legal bills. And up to this point, Bass really did make decent money. In the year prior to shooting Leach, 1883, he earned $3,500, which adjusted for inflation is over 100000 nowadays. And that home he was forced to sell in Van Buren with eight rooms and a very nice-sized barn out back weren't nothing to sneeze at. But alas, it was gone. And after Reeves got out of jail, he moved the family to a more humble abode on the outskirts of Fort Smith. And he went right back to being a deputy U.S. Marshal, continuing his journeys into no man's land in search of desperados. And just like before, Bass continued bringing him in by the wagon load. Not Bell Star, though. Although Bass did receive a warrant for the famous Lady Bandit's arrest, she came in on her own volition. It's rumored that Bass and Bell did know each other, that they were friendly, and it's thought that Reeves gave her the courtesy of turning herself in. This would be the only time, by the way, that Bell Starr willingly surrendered, leading credence to the story of outlaws after learning that the unstoppable Bass was on their trail, simply called it quits and turned themselves in. Other than Bell, it was the usual horse thieves and murderers, but by November of 1890, Bass, like so many others, was out searching for the notorious Cherokee Ned Christie. In May of 1887, Deputy Marshal Dan Maples was murdered over in the Cherokee Nation. The lawman had been searching for whiskey peddlers, and his killer was initially assumed to be the notoriously violent Bud Trainer. Maples' fellow deputies began searching for Trainer, and when they couldn't find him, they rounded his buddies up instead, one of whom claimed that Maples' true assassin was not Bud Trainer, but instead a local Cherokee by the name of Ned Christie. Now, I did an episode on Ned a very long time ago, link in this episode's description if you're interested, but Christie was almost certainly an innocent man. Hell, he wasn't even a criminal by trade, and he definitely didn't rob no banks or trains or anything like that. He was very well respected and a leader in his community. Ned's main sin was refusing to surrender and take his chances in the white man's court. Once he found out that he was wanted for Maple's murder, Christie took to the woods, resulting in what's now known as Ned Christie's War. By 1889, the legendary Heck Thomas had located Ned's hideout and a vicious gun battle ensued. Although Ned was seriously wounded and his home burned down, he escaped, and the hunt was on yet again. Not that Christie was necessarily hiding, mind you. The man rebuilt, only this time it was a damn fortress up on top of a hill, double-walled with firing ports and enough food and water to withstand a siege. Guess Ned figured if they wanted him bad enough, they could come blast him out. Meanwhile, back at Fort Smith, the bounty on Christie was up to a cool one grand, which was about the equivalent to a little over 30000 in today's money. Just enough to entice a brand new string of deputies to come looking for Ned's scalp. Now, as innocent as Ned Christie may or may not have been, that was really no concern for officers like Bass Reeves. Right or wrong, their job was to deliver the wanted men to Judge Parker and just let the system decide their fate. That being the case, Reeves allegedly located Ned's cabin stronghold and, just like Heck Thomas before him, burned it down in an attempt to flush Christie out. By the way, this is part two and the final installment on the great Bass Reeves. 
Link below for part one, where we discuss Reeves' childhood, his escape from slavery, his employment as a deputy United States Marshal out of Fort Smith, Arkansas, and even his own murder trial. Today, we're starting right where we left off with Reeves' hunt for Ned Christie. And we'll also take a look at the rest of Bass's storied career, including the claims as to whether or not he truly inspired the Lone Ranger. And sorry if my voice sounds like it's wavering or a little off. I have been under the weather lately, but I am on the mend. Feeling much better, but my voice just ain't at 100 yet. Hopefully soon. Now that little info I just shared about Reeves burning Christie's cabin down, sadly there aren't many more details available. If it did happen, Bass went home empty-handed because Ned would continue to live free for the next couple of years. Nonetheless, I will share with you what I know. Per a November 1890 edition of the Vanita Indian Chieftain, quote, on Tuesday last, U.S. Deputy Marshal Bass Reeves of Fort Smith, with his posse, made an attack on the home of Ned Christie in the Flint District, who is perhaps the most notorious outlaw and desperado of the Indian Territory. And the outlaw's stronghold was burned to the ground. Supposing that the owner had been killed or wounded and was consumed in the building, the news went out that he had met a violent death. But Christie has turned up alive and may cause trouble yet is said to be on the warpath fiercer than ever and vows revenge on the marshal and his posse, end quote. Now take that with a grain of salt, as just two months later, the papers then began reporting that Ned killed Bass. Per the Muskogee Phoenix in January of 1891, quote, word reached here tonight of the killing of United States Marshal Bass Reeves near Taliqua, Indian Territory, by Ned Christie, a well-known fugitive, end quote. This was reported by several other papers until finally, on February 21st, 1891, the Ufala Indian Journal wrote, Deputy Marshal Bass Reeves lacks a lot of being dead. He turned up Saturday from the West with two wagons of prisoners going to Fort Smith. End quote. So did Bass Reeves really burn down Ned Christie's home, just like Heck Thomas? I don't know. According to at least one paper, he did, but I'm not sure there's any other evidence. Be that as it may, 1891 was a good year for Deputy Reeves. Not only did he put an end to the outlaw Bob Dozier, but he also arrested a longtime Seminole fugitive known as Greenleaf. Now, Dozier was pretty prolific in his own right. Guy was just involved in a little bit of everything. Stealing cattle, robbing stores, holding up stagecoaches, poker games, even fencing stolen property. A proper Old West racketeer. There is a dramatic account, the source apparently Bass's daughter Alice, where Reeves gets into a pretty touch-and-go gun battle with Dozier. It was at night, during a thunderstorm. Bass kills one of Dozier's men before himself playing possum. Then as Dozier emerges from the dark shadows, laughing like a maniac, Bass pops up, rises the lightning flashes, and guns Dozier down. Okay, maybe. But the court record shows that Bass delivered uh, Bob Dozier to Fort Smith alive, and that he was later released due to a lack of witnesses. Of course, I suppose that could have been a different Dozier. As for Greenleaf, this is one of those guys we don't know much about nowadays. He's certainly not a household name, but by the time Bass caught up with him, Greenleaf had been on the run for 18 years. So notorious was he there in Indian Territory that folks traveled from miles around just to watch Bass march him into Fort Smith in shackles. Story goes that Reeves considered that to be one of the high points of his career. Now, by this point, some pretty serious changes were afoot. For the first time ever, a court was established within the borders of Indian Territory, over in the town of Muskogee. And in the spring of 1890, the Territory of Oklahoma was formed. 
So now, in addition to Indian Territory, you also have the Territory of Oklahoma. It can get a little confusing, but from what I understand, Indian Territory at this time was what's now eastern Oklahoma. And out west, you had the Territory of Oklahoma. And of course, you still had the individual nations like the Cherokee Nation and the Choctaw Nation. I know that's an oversimplified explanation, but suffice it to say, times they was a-changin'. For instance, the formation of the Territory of Oklahoma allowed non-Native Americans to legally settle on land formerly reserved for the indigenous. And it also permitted the opening of saloons where they were previously not allowed. As you can imagine, chaos ensued when entrepreneurs started buying liquor in the newly formed Oklahoma Territory, hauling it west and illegally selling it to the natives in Indian Territory. One of the rougher saloons of the day was known as the Corner, in present-day Pottawatomie County right across the border from the Seminole Nation. Our very own Bass Reeves was reportedly one of the first deputies brave enough to enter into the saloon alone, and it's there where he received his one and only gunshot wound, at least the only one we know of. A Dr. Jesse Mooney, who would later write two books chronicling his time as a frontier sawbones, was called to the saloon one day following a gunfight. According to Mooney, as he stepped within the darkened dive, he found Deputy Bass Reeves bleeding from the leg and half leaning against a table, revolver still in hand, and at his feet a dead man in a pool of blood, who was also clutching a six-shooter. When the doctor asked Reeves what happened, Bass replied that it was just another young man who doubted his abilities. Quote, he was fast, but like a lot of them, they can't shoot both fast and straight. End quote. In November 1891, Bass shot and killed an outlaw by the name of Ben Billy, who also made the mistake of doubting Reeves' abilities. You can find proof of this in messages sent from Bass to Marshall Yoz. More on that later. And by 1893, Reeves would be transferred to the federal court down in Paris, Texas, which at that time had jurisdiction over much of the Choctaw and Chickasaw nations. As such, Bass would first be stationed out of the town of Calvin on the Canadian River and then Wetumpka over in the Creek Nation. Keep in mind, his wife and kids are still back there at Fort Smith, Arkansas. And being away from family for such long stretches of time, it's easy to see how things back home can get neglected. And that's no judgment on Bass. He was doing his duty, I'm sure. I get it. But nonetheless, by the mid-1890s, and without a strong father figure present, some of his children began acting out. In fact, two of his sons, Edgar and Newland, ended up getting sent to the Arkansas pen in the summer of 1895, one for perjury and the other for assault. And tragically, less than a year later, Bass's wife, Jenny, would die of cancer. Deputy Reeves, ever on the search for bad guys, does not appear to have attended her funeral, which, per records, was paid for by Bass's son-in-law. By 1897, Reeves was transferred yet again and began working out of the town of Muskogee where he'd end up living for the next decade. And with this move, the nature of his job began to change quite a bit as well, with Reeves' duties now resembling that of a town vice cop more than a frontier marshal. Evidently, Muskogee was overrun with gambling halls and whorehouses, and Bass was charged with cleaning the town up. According to Art Burton in Black Gun Silver Badge, quote, the crimes that Bass Reeves was now attending to in the late 1890s were somewhat different than those he dealt with in the courts of Paris and Fort Smith. Reeves would spend some time in the saddle during his last 10 years as a lawman, but more and more he used a one-horse carriage or walked a beat. Moving into the 20th century, Reeves would eventually become more of a town cop with rural responsibilities. 
The days of riding his magnificent horses over the great expanse of prairie for weeks and months at a time, looking for desperados, was long gone. One aspect that did not change was his ability to catch criminals who broke the law, end quote. Now, eventually, a few of Bass's children joined him there in Muskogee, and in January of 1900, wedding bells tolled once more when Reeves married a widow Cherokee freedman by the name of Winnie Sumner. Sadly, just nine months later, Reeves' 17-year-old daughter passed away from epilepsy, and then in October of 1901, his 14-year-old son, Bass Reeves Jr., was succumbed to pneumonia. Disaster struck again the following year, 1902, when another son, Benjamin, found himself in some pretty serious trouble with the law. Story goes that young Ben Reeves, then just 21, came home from work one day and caught his wife with another man. Oh boy. As heartbroken as I'm sure he was, Benjamin let it slide, tried to do what he could to keep the marriage intact. Even confided in his father about it, asking what he would have done, and Bass flat out said that he'd have shot the hell out of the man and then whipped the living God out of her. As his words, not mine. Unfortunately, Ben's wife would step out on him yet again, and taking his father's words to heart, albeit backwards, Benjamin beat the man to a bloody pulp and then shot his wife dead before possibly, and unsuccessfully, attempting to take his own life. Now keep in mind with that version of events I just relayed, we don't have Ben's wife's side of the story, obviously. I'm just tossing that out there. When Bass heard what happened, he immediately hauled ass to the marshal's office and demanded the warrant said it was his boy, so his responsibility. Give me the warrant, I'll bring him in. The marshal at the time, Leo Bennett, reluctantly did so, and two weeks later, Bass Reeves returned with his son in custody. Or was it that very same day? Once again, there are conflicting timelines, and in one version, Bass simply arrests Benjamin at his home there in Muskogee. Either way, young Ben would be found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Now, one narrative you'll hear time and time again is that this was a testament to Bass Reeves and his unwavering devotion to law and order, that he was such a stalwart and dedicated lawman that he'd even hunt down and arrest his own son. Okay, maybe, or maybe it's a little deeper than that. I don't know about you, but if my kid committed a crime, any crime, and I was able and authorized to do so, I'd much rather it be me that brings him in than someone else. Now, I've never worn a uniform, but I imagine it can be a little nerve-wracking arresting a murder suspect, or anyone really who's considered armed and dangerous. No matter how professional an officer is, there's still going to be all kinds of keyed up when it comes time to execute that warrant. And sometimes, shit happens. Also, I know people don't like to hear this, but you do have to take into account the times and the fact that Benjamin Reeves was a black man there is a very good chance that whatever deputy arrested Ben, if not Bass, would have been white and, Indian Territory or not, this was still the 1890s. As respected as Bass Reeves was, his son was more than likely, statistically speaking, was not going to get the same treatment as a white man. That's just a hard reality of the times, okay? I'm not going woke, so calm your ass down over there, boomer. I see you cracking your knuckles getting ready to send a very strongly worded email. Just simmer down, Grandpa. Now, I could be reading more into this than there is. Uh, maybe I'm completely wrong about his motivations. But as a father, I do tend to think Bass Reeves, more than anything, wanted to assure the safety of his boy. At very least, make sure he got his day in court, right? Reeves knew that Ben couldn't hide forever. He knew the law would eventually catch up to him. That was inevitable. And I think Bass wanted to lessen the chance of any accidents from occurring. Just one ignorant podcaster's opinion. 
and I would definitely be interested in knowing what those of you in law enforcement think. Hit me up at josh at wildwestextra.com. Speaking of law enforcement, I would like to extend a very heartfelt congratulations and thank you to Mr. Brent Reeves for his recent retirement after 32 years of locking up bad guys. If you're not familiar, Brent Reeves hosts the amazing podcast, This Country Life, over there on the Meat Eater Network. And I don't know the man personally, but after listening to a few episodes of This Country Life, I kind of wish I did. And I think you'll likely feel the same way. No, this is not a paid endorsement. I am a genuine fan. And he did recently retire. So thank you for your service, Mr. Reeves. It is kind of interesting if you think about it, though, right? Brent Reeves, Bass Reeves. Both men spent 32 years each working as law dogs, and they both operated out of Arkansas. Coincidence, or is podcaster and retired law enforcement officer Brent Reeves a reincarnation of Bass Reeves? Is Brent Reeves a time traveler? Is this new persona as a podcaster just a cover for what he truly is, an immortal officer of the law? We'll probably never know for sure, but I do think it's likely. Now, like I said, Bass's son, Ben, got life, but this would be commuted and he'd be set free after just 11 years. Whether or not his father's service had anything to do with this, I do not know. Now, just another quick word on race relations of Bass Reeves. Look, I'm sorry, but you just cannot discuss the most legendary black lawman of the Old West, who just so happened to have been born a damn slave, without also acknowledging the racial undertones. Now, first off, it is a common misconception that Reeves only arrested minority criminals. That is not true. Bass apprehended many a white outlaw, especially in those early years. He was fully a deputy marshal, and with all the authority that that entailed. And in that respect, Reeves wielded an enormous amount of leeway in a day and age that still saw black men lynched in certain areas, even for being perceived as disrespecting a white person. Be that as it may, Bass did see an enormous amount of positive change in a very short period of time. Born into slavery and then in just the span of a decade, Reeves went from being a runaway slave to a lawfully sworn deputy of the United States Marshal Service. He made good money, he was treated mostly with respect by his fellow lawmen, and he enjoyed a somewhat close relationship with the powerful Judge Parker. Unfortunately, whatever optimistic view Bass Reeves had of the future was somewhat shattered in 1896 with the Supreme Court decision in Plessy v. Ferguson. Long story short, a mixed-race gentleman, Homer Plessy, was arrested down in Louisiana for sitting in a whites-only train car. He fought the case, it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they ruled against him, stating that having separate facilities for blacks and whites was constitutional, so long as the facilities in question were quote-unquote equal, which, let's be honest, they never really were. But still, what's the big deal? I mean, why would Bass Reeves care about some light-skinned dude all the way over in Louisiana? Well, as it turns out, Plessy v. Ferguson had immediate, far-reaching, and long-lasting ramifications for all people of color. And it paved the way for a shit ton of new segregation laws. For someone like Reeves, it was an enormous slap in the face. The highest court in the land letting him know exactly who he was and where he stood. You know, you're good enough to put your life on the line day in and day out, getting your black ass shot at all over Indian territory, but you can't even sit in the same train car as the white criminals that you're putting in jail. According to the Reeves family, quote, although the decision did not immediately impact Indian territory, Bass Reeves felt like he had been betrayed by the U.S. government. 
Reeves would now stand toward the rear at crowd gatherings and not be as vocal as he had been in the past, end quote. By the way, Plessy v. Ferguson would not be overturned until Brown versus the Board of Education and the various civil rights acts of the 1950s and 60s, decades after Reeves' death. Interestingly enough, one of Bass's own descendants would actually be involved with Brown versus the Board of Education. Stick around to the end of today's episode to learn more on that. And just one more little touch on the race issue and we'll move on, I promise. As I mentioned just a moment ago, Bass did arrest quite a few white criminals. This would change, however, as Oklahoma became more populated. Back in the 1870s and 80s, Indian Territory was about one of the most integrated places in all the United States. Be that as it may, following the Dawes Act and the formation of the Territory of Oklahoma, there was a huge influx of white settlers, and some of them didn't much appreciate a black man like Reeves enforcing federal law. You can even find interviews from the early 20th century with people talking about how astonished they were at coming to Oklahoma and finding black lawmen. I'm not aware of Bass ever being reprimanded or officially being told not to arrest white people, but in time he would do so with less frequency, even supposedly saying that it wasn't worth the trouble and that he preferred to work in areas more populated with African Americans or Native Americans. Just to be clear, Bass would continue to arrest white people. The official records reflect this but just not as often as he had in the past. I think it's pretty obvious that Reeves was very much aware of the atmosphere. You know, you just don't survive in a rough land that long without learning how to read the crowd. Now, despite these changing times, Bass did continue to be employed by the by God United States Marshal Service. And legend has it, he continued to be just as deadly as ever. In the year 1904, Reeves, already in his mid-60s, employed an interesting tactic when apprehending a couple of Texas boys for murder, something his daughter would later refer to as the letter trick. Per daughter Alice, Bass encountered both men on the road and greeted them with a friendly, good morning, gentlemen, to which they replied that they did not speak to black N-words. Of course, not being the sharpest knives in the drawer, they kept on speaking, asking Bass if he was really the notorious deputy Bass Reeves. The aging yet wily lawman played it cool and replied that no, he was not. But I guess they weren't buying it. Them Texas bad men shucked iron and ordered Reeves down off his horse, asking if he had any last words. Bass did as he was told, careful not to spook him, and said that he had a letter from his wife and would they be so kind to read it to him before sending him on to meet his maker. One of the Texas men sneeringly asked what difference it would make, but Reeves already had the letter out and was handing it over his hands quivering in mock fear. That split second, they took their eyes off Bass and looked down at that paper was all the time Deputy Reeves needed. In what must have seemed like a blur, Bass reached out and wrapped a giant hand around the throat of the closest outlaw while simultaneously drawing his revolver, at which point the second bandit got so scared that he dropped his gun, and that was that. Another two arrests for the record books. You know, I think in all the time I've been covering these Old West figures here on the Wild West Extravaganza, Bass Reeves is the only guy that just routinely grabs motherfuckers by the throat. I said it before and I'll say it again. If these stories are true, then Reeves must have either been insanely quick or just extremely fearless. Or both. With that in mind, some of these stories, like the one I just told, come from the Reeves family and thus are virtually impossible to corroborate. And the others come from various sources, authors or journalists who interviewed Reeves, court records, newspaper articles, correspondence between Bass and the Marshals, firsthand eyewitness accounts, you name it. As is the case with anyone we cover here on the Wild West Extravaganza, you gotta assume there's a little fluff thrown in. Did Bass really kill that guy at 500 yards? 
like we discussed last episode? I'm pretty sure he didn't. I don't even think the gun shoots that far. Did Bass really burn down Ned Christie's stronghold? I got no idea. Did Reeves really just routinely grab men by the throat, and then, while still holding on, he pulls his gun with his free hand and shoots their companions? Once again, I can't say, but it does sound pretty Hollywood, right? Sounds a little bit made up. I said all that to say this. I did get a comment stating that last week's episode, link down in the description, was fraudulent nonsense, and that Bass was no legend that almost all the information about him comes from him or dubious sources, and that's why most smart folks don't speak of his false claims. Yikes. Now, I am not a smart man, that much is true, but to say that Bass Reeves' story is fraudulent nonsense is blatantly false. You can view the official records. You don't just have to go by fanciful tells you find on the internet. I've mentioned the book Black Gun, Silver Star by Art Burton several times already. It is chock full of credible primary sources. For instance, earlier in passing, I mentioned that Reeves killed an outlaw named Ben Billy. You can read Bass's actual message that he sent to his marshal requesting a writ of arrest for Billy's compadre. In the message, Reeves explained exactly what happened, how Ben Billy and his buddy put up a fight, and how he, Bass, had to shoot Billy twice. If that's not enough, there are also the official court records from later on during Billy's friend's trial there at Fort Smith. You can read Bass Reeves' own testimony at that trial as well as his cross-examination, and you can read the testimony of the two guys who were serving as Reeves' posse-men. Bass Reeves was, irrefutably, beyond a shadow of a doubt, a for-real deputy U.S. marshal out of Judge Parker's court. For years upon years, Bass traveled into Indian Territory and returned with wagon loads of prisoners. These are proven facts. His many arrests are documented, as are more than a few of his killings. The man served in law enforcement for over 30 years, and as you'll soon hear, was even engaging in gunplay at damn near 70 years of age. I don't care who you are, that is, by definition, a legendary career. As is the case with all of these Old West figures, there's gonna be some embellishment. It happens with everybody. Bass couldn't read or write, so we don't have his own story in his own words. But if we did, I'm sure it'd be just as full of tall tales as were the stories that Wild Bill Hickok and John Wesley Harden both told. And as full of manure as both those men were when retelling their own exploits, their real-life adventures were truly the stuff of legends. Jim Bridger was a noted liar, right? especially when talking to quote-unquote pilgrims. It does not mean that Jim Bridger was not a legend. There's no telling what kind of stories Bass Reeves told his kids. No telling what kind of stories he told news reporters. None of that takes away the facts from this man's long, storied career. Now, not to beat a dead horse, but on our timeline, we're already in 1904, right? Let's just take a look at a few documented arrests that Bass Reeves, in his mid-60s, made in 1904 right around the time that he allegedly pulled that letter trick. The following comes from official records, by the way, not from Bass Reeves or his family or anything dubious like that. January 15th, 1904, Bass arrests Jess Morgan for assault. February 18th, 1904, Bass arrests Cornelius Graves for unlawfully carrying a pistol. March 11th, 1904, Reeves arrests a Creek Indian with the awesome name of Dick Lucky for selling stolen cattle. April 12, 1904, Bass arrests Thomas Matthews for threatening to shoot someone. May 1, 1904, Bass arrests Lonnie Smith for assault with a deadly weapon. That same exact day, Bass also arrests Abe Drew for murder. May 5, 1904, Bass arrests John Larimore for stealing chickens. 
A week later, Bass arrests Bob Johnson on a whiskey charge. And when Bob tries to escape, Reeves puts a bullet in his leg. This was documented. The following day, Bass arrests John Wilkins for stealing horses. May 23, 1904, 66-year-old Bass Reeves arrests five men in a 24-hour period for illegally selling whiskey. I think you get the picture, right? And this wasn't just some streak that Bass was on in the spring of 1904. This was the man's entire career, over three decades. Go back and look at the records if you're doubting it. Even all the way back to the 1880s. Don't believe me? Here's just a tiny sample. August 1882, Bass returned to Fort Smith with 16 prisoners. August 83, returned with 13 prisoners. February 1884, Bass Reeves brings in 12 prisoners. Two months later, April 1884, another 12. September 1884, Reeves hauls in 15. March 1885, 13. October 1885, 17. It just keeps going. All of these dates are just a fraction of the verified arrests that we have records for made by Bass Reeves. I don't know, but it doesn't sound very fraudulent to me. Once again, Black Gun Silver Star by Art Burton. Mr. Burton goes into great detail, and I assure you the records are legion. Is there some embellishment in there? Sure. For instance, I can't prove what I'm about to tell you. You know, you arrest that many people, and you're bound to make enemies, right? And if the stories are to be believed, Bass Reeves had more than a few close calls with would-be assassins. Like what happened in November of 1906. Reeves was in a wagon, traveling after sundown, when he was fired on by an unknown assailant. Bass did shoot back, but he was never able to get a good bead on him before they fled into the night. On another occasion, in that very same area, Reeves was traveling with two prisoners when someone once again opened up fire. Bass fell back and played possum, allegedly, and when the wannabe dry gulcher stepped out into the open, Reeves bounced up and plugged the damn fool in the gut. I don't know if the man lived or not, but I suspect, at very least, to paraphrase John Wayne, he had himself a long winter bellyache. Skip ahead another year, 1907, right there in Muskogee, Oklahoma, USA, Bass Reeves was involved in his last known major gunfight at the age of 69. Nice. Per official records, a recent transplant from San Francisco broke several of the city ordinances getting high on both marijuana and LSD, while at the same time burning his draft card and brazenly disrespecting the local college dean. Bass, who reportedly had been sipping on a little white lightning, wasn't having none of it, and when he asked for a description, was told that the dastardly offender had long shaggy hair, was wearing beads and Roman sandals, and had a, quote, history out of making a party out of loving, end quote. An incensed Reeves quickly located the ne'er-do-well, drew his pistol, and marched him straight back to the jailhouse where he forced the son of a bitch to listen to several hours of Merle Haggard, which is exactly what should be done to you if you didn't catch any of those references. Sorry, I just couldn't keep saying Muskogee over and over again without at least dropping one reference to Haggard's Okie from Muskogee. Far as I know, there were no pot-smoking hippies in Oklahoma in 1907. But there were anarchists. I shit you not. And the true story of Bass Reeves' last gunfight is almost as strange as the one that I just made up. So bear with me, I promise this next part is actually true. On March 26, 1907, a large group of black anarchists calling themselves the United Socialist Club took over a house there in Muskogee and declared it as their own. What's more, they also said that they could take any property in town if they chose to do so. 
Their leader was a crackpot and so-called minister by the name of William Wright, who, in addition to teaching scripture and practicing voodoo, had also convinced his followers that they were not subject to any modern-day laws. So sort of like a turn-of-the-century, slightly more delusional, sovereign citizen movement. When officers arrived to evict the anarchists, they were met with a hell of gunfire, and deputies Guy Fisher and John Caulfield were wounded. Fisher was able to escape, but Caulfield just lay there, pinned down and bleeding out. The marshals, once alerted, showed up in force, led by the legendary Bud Ledbetter, and a full-blown gun battle ensued. The 69-year-old Bass Reeves didn't arrive until later, but he was still able to get in on the action and send at least one of the anarchists to the happy anti-capitalist stateless society in the sky before the fight was over. And no, Bass was not yet ready to retire. Matter of fact, just a month later, in April of 1907, he would arrest a murder suspect right there in Muskogee. A couple of days after that, he apprehended a young man wanted for assault. Bass just did not slow down. Hell, he even arrested the minister who, just a few years prior, had baptized him. I'm not kidding. The preacher in question had been called illegally selling whiskey, and Bass did not hesitate in hauling his ass downtown. I do find that interesting, though, that Reeves was baptized so late in life. Kind of makes me wonder if it was his first Duncan or sort of a renewal of vows. Whatever the case, Bass apparently had no qualms in arresting his own pastor. And let that be a warning to all you men of the cloth out there. All right, don't be so stingy when it comes time for communion. Maybe don't hold our heads under the water so long. Now, the good times don't last forever, though, and once Oklahoma officially became a state in November of 1907, there was quite a bit of downsizing, including at the marshal's office. For the first time in over three decades, barring the six months he spent in jail, Bass Reeves was out of a job, at least temporarily. What long before he was hired on by the Muskogee Police Department and began walking a beat downtown. The local paper ran the following story on January 2nd, 1908. Former Deputy United States Marshal Bass Reeves, who was in many battles with outlaws in the wild days of Indian Territory and during Judge Parker's reign at Fort Smith, is on the Muskogee Police Force. Reeves is now over 70 years old and walks with a cane. A bullet in his left leg, received while in government service, gives him considerable trouble. He is as quick a trigger, however, as in the days when gunmen were in demand. I like the way they put that, back in the days when gunmen were in demand. And I really love this next little detail. As the article stated, Bass was walking with a cane at this point, but here's the best part. While on patrol, Reeves also had an assistant walk alongside him, carrying a sack of guns. And he was still just as cautious as ever. If someone yelled out his name or called out to him, Bass would quickly put his back to the nearest wall before even so much as turning to see who it was. As you can imagine, there was zero crime on the beat of Constable Bass Reeves. Now, he would continue working for the Muskogee police for about two years, but sadly, Bass's health began declining. Turns out Reeves had Bright's disease, which affects the kidneys. Ironically, this is the same thing that felled his old boss, Judge Parker. Luke Short, who we covered here on the Wild West Extravaganza a couple of years ago, also died of Bright's disease, as did Emily Dickinson and Booker T. Washington, just to name a couple more. So it were on January 12, 1910, after 32 years of service, that Bass Reeves finally hung up that badge for good. The legendary lawman was survived by his second wife, a few children, and believe it or not, his own mother, who at the time was 87 years young. 
Now, I tried finding out the location of Reeves' final resting place, but it looks like nobody really knows for sure. He was supposedly buried there in Muskogee, either at the old agency cemetery, which now is on private land and, from what I can tell, highly neglected, or in a small cemetery west of town off a Fern Mountain Road. As of this recording, his tombstone, if he even ever had one, has not been located, which I do think kind of lends credence to the idea that Brent Reeves is actually Bass Reeves. I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying it's not impossible. Now, despite the lack of a tombstone, there are other monuments. Pass over the Bass Reeves Memorial Bridge. And if you ever find yourself at Fort Smith, Arkansas, you can see a giant statue of Bass right off of Garrison Avenue by the Fort Smith National Historical Site, where Judge Parker used to hold court. In addition, Reeves has been inducted into the Great Hall of Westerners at the National Cowboy Museum in Oklahoma City, and he has his own star, which I personally saw with my own two eyes a few weeks ago, on the Texas Trail of Fame in the Fort Worth Stockyards. And if that's not enough, the legendary lawman has also been featured on a number of television shows, comic books, video games, movies. Hell, there's even an off-Broadway stage play on Reeves titled Cowboy. And there's more to come. Right about the time you're hearing this, that new miniseries Lawman, Bass Reeves, will be making its debut on Paramount+. Plus. All total, Bass Reeves would have 11 children, although many of them would die rather young. I mentioned a few today, but I believe there were others who passed before their father. And it's not clear whether or not the Reeves name currently lives on. There is a former football player whose two sons are also pro athletes up in Canada, uh, one in the CFL and another in the NHL, and they do claim to be descendants. Which, I mean, kind of makes sense considering the quick reflexes and large size of Bass Reeves. These athletes have not been able to verify their connection. There are nieces and nephews, though. That much is proven. Bass's great-nephew, Paul L. Brady, would make history in 1972 as the first black man appointed as a federal administrative law judge. Brady would state that Bass Reeves was as much of an inspiration as he was a relation and that he's pleased more people are learning about his great-uncle and that the more people who are aware of him, the more who will be inspired by his actions. Also, as I hinted at earlier, it was Brady's aunt, Miss Lucinda Todd, who initiated Brown versus the Board of Education over in Topeka, Kansas. And finally, just as a somewhat morbidly interesting aside, but remember George Reeves, the guy who owned Bass up until he made his getaway during the Civil War? Well, George would later go into politics down in Texas, serving as a Speaker of the House, until he got bit by a rabid dog in 1882, after which he would spend the short remainder of his life inside of a padded shed, dying just three years before the rabies vaccine would be invented. Now, before we wrap things up, I would like to discuss whether or not Bass Reeves truly killed 14 men in the line of duty. This number was reported numerous times, even while Bass was still alive, and at the time of his death, some of the papers were saying it was closer to 20. For what it's worth, Reeves' biographer Art Burton thinks the number 14 is conservative and that the true body count is even higher. Not everybody agrees, though. David Kennedy of the U.S. Marshals Museum thinks the number 7 is a little more realistic. On this one, I really don't have an opinion. Uh, I did not go through and look at the primary sources for each of Reeves' alleged kills, but I will say these numbers are almost always inflated. If it's true that Bass only killed 7 men, as opposed to 14, well, I think we can all then agree that he was just a pussy, right? No, I'm kidding. Seven is still a very high number, okay? Any way you want to cut it. 
I'm not sure that Bass's more famous peers like Heck Thomas or Bill Tillman or Chris Madsen ever killed seven men. That's a lot of damn ghosts to be dragging behind you. Whatever the official number, if it even matters, which I personally don't think it does, there is no doubt that Bass Reeves was a dangerous man and definitely not somebody you wanted to go picking a gunfight with. Luckily, he spent most of his life working for the good guys. And as it turns out, he may have even inspired one of America's original good guys, the Lone Ranger. Or did he? Let's just go ahead and finally put this one to rest, okay? Here's the thing. There are similarities. As we touched on, it was protocol for deputies like Bass to be accompanied by at least one posseman while out in the field. And Reeves very often utilized Native American scouts, kind of like Tonto from the Lone Ranger. Then there's Bass's penchant for going undercover, sometimes even wearing disguises. A possible wink and nod to the Lone Ranger's mask. The deputy was also known to pay for his supplies with silver dollars, akin to the silver bullets that the Lone Ranger would use as calling cards. Finally, and I do think this is interesting, many of the men who Reeves arrested following a conviction would be sent to the Detroit House of Corrections. And it's there in Detroit in 1933 that the Lone Ranger made its radio debut. Does all that sound like a stretch? Yes, it absolutely does. I think many of these examples are tenuous at best. Reeves was certainly not the only lawman to employ Native American scouts, nor was he the first to work in disguise. And silver dollars were just a common currency of the day. Furthermore, the correspondence between the original Lone Ranger creators makes no mention of Bass Reeves. Instead, they write about how they wanted the character to be like early Hollywood cowboy actor Tom Mix, as well as kind of an Old West composite between Robin Hood and Zorro. Now, there are some that find the comparisons to the Lone Ranger insulting. They say that Bass can stand alone as a real historical figure and that he does not need to be compared to a fictional character. Judge Paul Brady, Bass's great-nephew who we just mentioned, echoed these sentiments saying that it's not acceptable to compare Reeves to a fictional character and that he was a real man who never had the distinction he deserved for many, many years. Now, for what it's worth, this entire Lone Ranger story, it originated with the author that I keep lauding, Art T. Burton. In Black Gun Silver Star, Mr. Burton has an entire chapter devoted to this theory. But it's just that, a theory. I was not able to find any instance of Mr. Burton claiming that Bass did absolutely inspire the Lone Ranger or that he had any sort of concrete proof or that he was even necessarily married to the idea. Burton was just putting it out there into the ether and pointing out the various similarities. I guess the media did what the media does and ran with it as if it were gospel. And here we are today with my ignorant ass weighing in on it. Now, with that in mind, Mr. Burton, when speaking of the theory, commented, quote, if the Lone Ranger analogy will help people understand who Bass is and what he did and to make his name connect somehow, I don't think that's a bad thing. End quote. So no, Bass Reeves did not inspire the fictional Lone Ranger, but what's not up for debate is that Reeves himself was a larger-than-life figure. The man was fearless, and in addition to being held with both rifle and pistol, Bass could track and ride with the best of them, and he damn near always got his man. Make no mistake about it, not a whole lot of people could have done what Reeves did. The fact that he repeatedly, for decades, placed himself in the lion's den and went toe-to-toe -to -toe with some of the worst, and the most he got was a bullet to the thigh, speaks volumes. And yeah, I'm glad he's finally getting a little recognition. And that's about all I've got on Bass, MF, and Reeves. 
Cherokee Bill was part black, part white, part Native American, and 100% outlaw. The young bandit wouldn't live past the tender age of 20, but still found time to commit a litany of violent crimes, robbing everything from trains to general stores and even a bank, and taking at least seven lives in the process, possibly more. As Bill stood on the gallows with the hangman's noose around his neck, he was asked if he had any final words. His reply, I came here to die, not make a speech. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Believe it or not, Cherokee Bill was not the man's given name. Shocker, I know. It was Crawford, Crawford Goldsby, and he was born on February 8th, 1876 at Fort Concho, Texas. By the way, nobody knows for sure when Crawford earned the nickname Cherokee Bill, so I will be interchangeably referring to him as Crawford, Goldsby, and Bill throughout this episode, and sometimes just plain old Cherokee for short. Now, Crawford was the son of a soldier, George Goldsby, and his wife, Ellen, both of whom were of mixed heritage. You may find sources claiming that George was half Lakota and part Mexican, but this is not the case. Truth is, George's daddy was a white plantation owner out of Selma, Alabama by the name of Thornton Goldsby, and his mama was one of Thornton's slaves, a lady by the name of Hester King. And while I was unable to determine whether or not George was ever a slave himself, we do know that he was born in 1843, and when the war between the states broke out, he was employed as a hired servant for the Confederate Army. Company D of the 8th Alabama Infantry. A few days after the Battle of Gettysburg, George defected and joined the Union Army, enlisting as a quartermaster and serving with distinction in the 21st Pennsylvania Cavalry for the remainder of the war. Now this is interesting, especially considering that the 21st was not a segregated unit. Believe it or not, George was able to successfully pass himself off as a white man, and after seeing a photograph of him holding a baby Cherokee bill, I can understand why. Assuming that the picture in question does truly depict George Goldsby, then yeah, he was very light-skinned and he could definitely pass. And as you'll soon hear, he would continue to do so in the years to come. Not just yet, though. He would return to Sweet Home, Alabama, following the war. But once word got out that he fought for the Yankees, there was talk of stringing him up, so George didn't stick around. Can't blame him there. He headed out west and, in the fall of 1867, would once again enlist in the U.S. Army and began working up through the ranks of the all-black 10th Cavalry, a.k.a. the Buffalo Soldiers. Initially stationed out of Fort Sill, Indian Territory, Goldsby would, in time, be transferred to Fort Concho, down Texas Way. Details are sparse, but it's likely George participated in engagements with the Comanche and Kiowa during this period. And round about 1874, a then-31-year-old George Goldsby met and married the future Cherokee Bill's mama, 15-year-old Ellen Beck. Now, Ellen, as I mentioned earlier, was also multiracial, what was known in them days as a Cherokee freedman. We've all heard about the Trail of Tears, right? About how the Cherokee and other so-called civilized tribes were forcibly removed from the lands of their ancestors and made to relocate to present-day Oklahoma. They were called civilized for a reason. The Cherokee, along with the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creeks, and Seminoles, had, even before the Indian Removal Act, largely assimilated into white Southern culture. Most of them were farmers, they were educated, hell, the Cherokee had their own written language, and many had converted to Christianity. The dirty little secret that folks don't much like to acknowledge is that they were also slave owners. At least some of them were. And when these people were forced to relocate to Indian territory, they brought their slaves along with them. 
It's estimated that by the year 1861, there were around 4,000 enslaved black people living among the Cherokee, Ellen Beck and her parents among them. As such, she was part African-American, part Cherokee, and part white. Now, she and George would have four children that I'm aware of. And by all accounts, George Goldsby was one hell of a soldier, as he would attain the rank of first sergeant, which, if I'm not mistaken, is just one rung below sergeant major. Certainly an accomplishment. By the way, Fort Concho, where Cherokee Bill was born, was about 200 miles northwest of San Antonio. And at that time, still very much a frontier outpost. What's more, the soldiers who were stationed there, like First Sergeant Goldsby, had the somewhat dubious honor of protecting people that didn't care too much for them, mostly based on the color of their skin. This was something I touched on during the Frank Canton series, and it was an undeniable point of friction out west. These Buffalo soldiers had a tough job, one that put them in harm's way on a regular basis, and due to race relations just not being all that hunky-dory back in the 1870s, it was by and large a thankless job, and harassment was a commonplace occurrence. If you're getting ready to fire off an email telling me about how the Buffalo soldiers weren't worth a damn, or that I'm somehow being woke because I acknowledge the fact that racism existed in the 19th century, save it. It is a fact. Black soldiers were often treated poorly by the very people they were tasked with protecting. This is not some sort of controversial sweeping remark or a judgment against your great-grandma. I'm not making a political point. Sometimes people just don't get along. Sometimes people don't get along because of something as silly as the color of their skin. It happens, even nowadays. So please, save your whataboutisms for somebody else. And I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about that other guy. As far as the men of Fort Concho were concerned, all of this tension finally came to a head in neighboring San Angelo in 1878, when some rowdy cowpokes ripped the chevrons off a black trooper's uniform. An act that I think we can all agree is highly disrespectful. After all, that man earned those stripes. For better or for worse, the insulted sergeant headed back to the fort and soon returned with reinforcements, including First Sergeant George Goldsby. And you better believe they was armed to the teeth. Gunplay ensued that saw several wounded and at least one white cowboy killed along with one dead buffalo soldier. If you've ever seen the painting by famed Western artist Frederick Remington titled How the Worm Turns, that's a depiction of this very gunfight there at San Angelo. Pretty cool painting, by the way. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes, but Remington was just out of this world talented. Shortly after this fight, a few Texas Rangers paid Fort Concho a visit, looking to arrest Goldsby, but his commander, Colonel Benjamin Grierson, sent him packing, saying that they didn't have no damn authority at a by-god U.S. military installation. Still, though, Goldsby was understandably nervous. I reckon George didn't trust the Army to protect him forever, and respected NCO or not, when or if Sergeant Goldsby was handed over to the law, it likely weren't going to end well. So he got out while the getting was still good going AWOL and fleeing up into Indian territory, leaving Ellen and the children behind in the process, including our very own Cherokee Bill, who was not yet two years of age. Now, Ellen and the kiddos would also head up to the territory and meet up with George around Fort Gibson, but it would be a short-lived reunion. The former sergeant stuck around for a few weeks, and then he left again. Since Ellen was the official laundress of the 10th Cav, and now a single mother trying to feed several children, she traveled with the soldiers wherever they went. Fort Concho to Fort Davis, Fort Grant, even Fort Apache over in Arizona. And while she was on the road, the children were left in the care of an older black lady by the name of Amanda Foster, known to all as Auntie Amanda. And it would be there at Fort Gibson in the Cherokee Nation with Auntie Amanda that young Crawford Goldsby would spend the next few years. 
at least until around the age of seven when he went to go get him an education. First in Kansas and then all the way up north to Pennsylvania where he attended the infamous Carlisle School for Indians. Maybe. And this is kind of a big maybe. Despite what you may have read, despite what I have read, turns out there is no documentable evidence showing that Bill ever attended the Carlisle School. And I'm not even sure where this rumor started. His daddy George, upon settling down in Eureka Springs and finding steady employment, sent for Bill and his siblings. By the way, there in Kansas, George Goldsby was once again passing himself off as a white man. And for good reason. He was married to a white lady. This is where the story of him being part Lakota and part Mexican came into play. This is a narrative that he himself invented so as not to cause issues in a day and age where a black man and a white woman living together was 100% taboo and just flat out illegal in many areas. According to Amanda Foster in a 1912 interview with the pension board over in Muskogee, she stated that everyone, quote, regarded George as a white man, end quote. As far as Cherokee Bill's education goes, he would attend some type of school there in Kansas, but there's no record of it being an Indian school or of there even being an Indian school in that area. Whether or not it was segregated, I do not know, but he would ultimately return to the Cherokee Nation and his mother a few years later at the age of 12. Ellen had remarried to another former soldier by the name of William Lynch, and well, let's just say Bill and his stepdaddy did not get along. Word has it the Cherokee told his mother that he wasn't going to call him dad ever, not even if there's a fire. And he followed that up by stating, quote, he better not get in my face because I'll drop that motherfucker, end quote. And no, sorry, that's uh, actually a line from Step Brothers. I love that movie. The part about Crawford and Mr. Lynch not getting along was absolutely true, though. By all accounts, young Bill was lashing out quite a bit at this time. And over the next few years, his anti-authoritarian streak would only continue to blossom. So much so that by 1891, a just 15-year-old Bill went to live with his older sister Georgia and her family over in Nawada, also in the Cherokee Nation, about 50 miles northwest of present-day Tulsa. And surprise, surprise, Crawford didn't get along with his brother-in-law either, a guy by the name of Mose Brown. Now, once again, this is where we break with the common narrative. You'll find more than a few sources claiming the Cherokee Bill would kill his brother-in-law around this period either during an argument over pigs or because he caught the man beating on his sister. Hell, you'll even find some sources stating that Bill killed his first man even earlier, at the age of 12. None of this is true. While Crawford would, in the future, absolutely kill Mr. Brown, it wasn't when he was 15. Goldsby only lived with Moe's in Georgia for a little while before returning to Fort Gibson and moving in with a Cherokee freedman with a really awesome and totally not a male stripper name of Bud Buffington. Bill also took to spend time in the big city of Catoosa. Now, Catoosa was a cow town with a pretty rough reputation in them days, and chock full of plenty of bad influences for a rudderless young man like Crawford Goldsby. Most accounts do seem to agree that it was at this time that Bill took to enjoying liquor and hanging out with the quote-unquote wrong crowd. Other young hoodlums around his age with names like the Verdigris Kid, Chicken Lucas, Buck Snyder, and Skeeter Baldwin, along with the nefarious Cook brothers Jim and Bill. Skeeter Baldwin. How about that for a name? And I actually knew a Skeeter long time ago. Friend of my older brother. And Skeeter had this bad habit of coming over to our house and climbing in through my brother's window when nobody was at home and playing with his toys. One day my dad decides to have a little fun, so he grabs the shotgun and goes running into my brother's room, yelling and hollering. And there goes Skeeter flying through the window. He never did sneak in no more after that. And that's what I think about when I hear the name Skeeter. Now, a favorite pastime for Crawford and these young delinquents was riding to the outskirts of town to practice with their guns. 
They'd place a target on a tree and fire at it while riding at full gallop. Per eyewitness reports, Bill was a dead shot and able to hit a squirrel in the eye with his Winchester as far as he could see. Now, I don't know about all that, but I have no doubt that Bill was more than proficient. You can't tell from the existing photos of the young man, but Crawford was a flashy dresser, favoring large white brim hats, red bandanas, Mexican jingle bob spurs, and fancy studded chaps. Chaps. Do you know that's how you pronounce it? It ain't chaps. It's chaps. Now, don't look at me like that. I don't make the rules. Chaps. That said, Goldsby was earning his keep honest-like doing everything from sweeping out shops for room and board and even working as a legit cowboy on nearby ranches. One employer remembered Bill during this time as being a, quote, quiet, good-natured, hard-working boy, well-liked by all who knew him, end quote. Unfortunately, that would all change come the spring 1894, when a then 18-year-old Crawford Goldsby shot a Cherokee freedman by the name of Jake Lewis. Apparently, they was all attending a dance over at Fort Gibson when Lewis attacked Bill's younger brother, Clarence. And when Bill stepped in to put a stop to it, Lewis and his buddies all ganged up on him and gave him a hellacious beating. So the next day, Cherokee hid out in a barn, and as soon as Jake Lewis stepped inside, he shot him at least twice before fleeing. And I say at least twice because I did find another account that said it was four times. Either way, Lewis would survive these wounds, a fact that was initially unknown to Bill. Far as he was concerned, he was now wanted for murder. So he led out for the Creek Nation, where he joined up with his buddies, Jim and Bill Cook, and their gang, including the aforementioned Vertigris Kid and some of them other ne'er-do-wells from over in Catoosa. By the way, the Cook brothers were also part Cherokee. That meant that they, along with Bill, were eligible for payments after the government bought an area from the Cherokee Nation known as the Cherokee Outlet. For compensation, each tribal member was supposed to have received a check for around $265. Doesn't sound like much, but keep in mind that adjusted for inflation, that's like 9000 bucks nowadays. So as you can imagine, these youngsters were dying to get their hands on a piece of that pie. And what's more, it was completely legal. Outlaws or not, this was their money. All they had to do was head on over to Tahlequah and collect. Be that as it may, when you're wanted for attempted murder like Cherokee Bill, or a wide assortment of other crimes like the Cooks were, you can't just be riding into town all willy-nilly like. That being the case, they recruited a local lady named Effie Crittenton to go pick up the money on their behalf. Only problem was her ex-old man, a Cherokee policeman by the name of Dick Crittenton, got wind of these developments and it weren't long before a posse came looking to arrest Bill and the others. Ah, but these desperados weren't planning on going down without a fight. Bill spotted the posse as they approached and rushed inside to warn the gang. And as soon as the lawmen rode up, they was ready. In the short yet intense battle that followed, a Cherokee deputy by the name of Sequoia Houston lost his life, likely from around from Cherokee's Winchester, and the just 15-year-old Jim Cook caught several pieces of buckshot. The posse lost steam and left to go get reinforcements, allowing Bill and his compadres to skedaddle and go hunt up a sawbones to see to Jim's wounds. They located a doctor and held him in gunpoint as he got to doctoring, but it weren't long before here comes the posse again. More gunfire was exchanged, and while Goldsby and Bill Cook were able to escape, they had to leave the wounded Jim behind. He'd survive the lead poisoning, but be sent to prison where he'd escape in 1896. A few years later, in the year 1900, Jim got into an argument over a stolen cow and was once again shot, this time several times in the back. And this time, he would not survive. He was 22 years old. That gunfight over at Effie's place was in mid-June 1894. And what followed can best be described as one hell of a prolific crime spree. 
one that would see nearly every member of the Cook Gang, including Cherokee Bill, dead and buried. Worth mentioning that the Cook Gang did not discriminate when it came to race. These boys was like the damn United Nations for outlaws. You had white dudes, black dudes, American Indians, and every sort of mix in between. They also didn't differentiate when it came to their victims. These were, without a doubt, equal opportunity criminals, and you better believe they were just getting started. A few days following the capture of Jim Cook and the gunfight with that posse, Bill and gang member Jim French rode into the town of Watumka over in the Creek Nation and robbed a mercantile store. By the way, this is not the same Jim French who rode with Billy Bonney down in New Mexico, although the two are sometimes mistaken for one another. Three days later, and 130 miles to the north, Bill and fellow banditti Henry Munson held up a rail agent over in Nevada, an action that led to Crawford taking yet another life. The railroad agent, feller named Dick Richards, made the fatal mistake of going for his gun, and Bill put his lights out with a bullet straight to the throat. Now, to Mr. Richards' credit, there was a mark on his gun hand indicating that he was fast enough to at least get a bead on Cherokee, but just a tad too slow on squeezing that trigger. In the days that followed, someone robbed the stage out of Fort Gibson, and then an unfortunate soul from down near Muldrow was killed and robbed of a substantial amount of money. Nobody knows for sure who committed either of these two crimes, but it was assumed it was the Cook Gang. These young men were rapidly making a name for themselves, and, as tends to be the case, many a nefarious deed was placed at their feet, guilty or not. That said, there was plenty they were for sure guilty of. For instance... We know that on July 18th, the boys, Cherokee Bill included, robbed a choo-choo train up in Red Fork. They laid in wait at the station, and when the train came rolling in, they hopped on board, guns drawn. All total, they'd make off with $15, a jug of whiskey, and a box of cigars. Or what I used to once upon a time call a damn good night. But $15 only goes so far, right? And besides, the real money's in the banks. Or at least you would think so. Turns out that didn't prove all that lucrative either as Bill and the crew discovered on the morning of July 30th, 1894. They rode into the town of Chandler, 5 deep, around 10 a.m., and made their way to an alley behind the bank. Leaving one or two men on the boardwalk, they stepped inside and jerked iron, commanding the employees to throw their hands up. Two female customers panicked, as they're wont to do, and ran out the back door, passing the other bandits as they did so. Got to imagine this is a nerve-wracking situation for all involved, even the outlaws. They're all keyed up, knowing they only have a short amount of time before the shit hits the fan. People are screaming, adrenaline is pumping, everybody's on edge. It's a real recipe for disaster. And considering these outlaws were as young as they were, a disaster was all but inevitable. Not looking to waste any more time, they dragged one of the tellers over to the safe and ordered him to open it up. An action that he explained was impossible due to it having one of them fancy time locks. As all this is happening, a barber across the street noticed the commotion and yelled out an alarm, confusing Cherokee and his buddies for the more notorious Dalton gang in the process. He starts a hollering, The Daltons are robbing the bank! The Daltons are robbing the bank! As Bill steps out onto the boardwalk and shouts for the man to shut the hell up. The concerned citizen keeps yelling, so Bill shoulders his rifle, takes aim, and at a distance of about 200 yards, plugs him straight through the forehead. And, of course, all hell then breaks loose. Another civilian, a Mr. Warren, was shot at several times as he made his way to his home, but once inside, he began returning fire from his kitchen window, dropping at least one of the outlaw's horses. Other townsfolk soon joined in, pumping round after round into the bank, which resulted in the gang spilling out and making for their mounts under a hell of fire. At this point, the local sheriff had been roused, and he followed in close pursuit with a small posse, but when Bill and them others hit a grove of timber just outside of town, they scattered. 
There was a short little 15-minute gunfight, but that was about it. As the noise died down and the lawmen cautiously approached, all they found was one man, Elmer Lucas. He had taken a bullet through both thighs and was ready to call it quits. As for the others, they was gone, disappearing into the depths of Indian territory once more, leaving a widow and two fatherless children in their wake. And all they had to show for it was a measly $300 in the bank president's pocket watch. A few days later, a famous tracker set out in pursuit of the boys, a guy by the name of Tiger Jack. A lot of cool names on this episode, man. One of the few redeeming qualities of Oklahoma, to be honest. They really knew how to give people some proper Old West nicknames. Now, Tiger Jack had worked for quite a few deputy U.S. Marshals in the past, including Heck Thomas, to hunt down desperados. He was a member of the Uchi tribe, a people removed to the territory in the 1830s with their allies, the Creek. And while Tiger Jack did ultimately fail to locate the gang, other members of the Uchi tribe would not. They, along with the Creek Nation Light Horse Police, caught up with the boys in early August 1894 just outside the town of Sepulpa. They was hiding out at Henry Munson's uncle's place and just standing out in the open one morning as the posse came thundering in, a dozen strong and daggers drawn. And by daggers, I mean firearms, which, uh, they were shooting. I don't know why I felt like trying to get fancy just then. Daggers. In the exchange that followed, the aforementioned Henry Munson and Cook gang member Lon Gordon were killed and one Indian policeman wounded as Bill and the others fought their way out. I want you to keep in mind that Cherokee Bill is still just 18 years old at this time, and it's only been a few months since he shot Jake Lewis back there in Fort Gibson. So all this activity we've been discussing, the train robbery, them holding up that bank, the numerous gunfights and close calls and killings, this has all occurred in a very short period. These boys were wild as hell. They weren't pulling a score and then laying low for a while. They were constantly at it from one job to another. And by the looks of it, not giving too much thought about how it was all going to end. That said, things did quiet down for a bit. For a little over a month following the deaths of Munson and Gordon, we don't really know what Bill and the others were up to. Not until September 14th when they popped back up in the town of Okmulgee, robbing a store of several hundred dollars. Okmulgee. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I had to stop several times doing research on this episode in order to figure out how to say the names, all these damn towns up there in Oklahoma. I learned my lesson from back on the Ned Christie episode after I repeatedly butchered the pronunciation of Tahlequah. And to be honest, I'm still not sure I'm getting it right. Tahlequah. Don't play with your Tahlequah. Nearly three weeks later, the gang would strike again robbing a train depot at Wagoner, making off with another $300 and shooting their guns off as they galloped out of town, scaring the shit out of everybody. And the next day, they took $120 off a Cherokee man on his way to Fort Gibson before splitting up. Bill Cook and a few others went and robbed an entire work crew of coal miners, just honest, hardworking men, as Cherokee Bill and his bunch robbed yet another train depot in the town of Shadow. 11 days later, on October 20th, 1894, a Missouri Pacific Express train was held up just five miles south of Wagoner. And although the Cook gang was blamed, turns out this particular robbery was orchestrated by former gang member Bus Lucky. And if you're an aspiring mumble rapper looking for a good stage name, you can do a hell of a lot worse than Bus Lucky, let me tell you. Things had gotten so bad there in the territory that Indian agent Do Wisdom sent the following wire to the Office of Indian Affairs in D.C., my police force is not equal to the emergency. And Marshal Crump at Fort Smith writes that he has not the money to keep marshals in the field for a campaign. Affairs here are in desperate condition. Business is suspended. The people generally intimidated and private individuals robbed every day and night. 
The state of siege must be broken and something done to save life and property. Now, this call of distress got attention. The U.S. Attorney General pledged the government's full cooperation and authorized the posting of rewards for the capture of any or all of the Cook gang, as did the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. This, of course, just meant more heat for Cherokee Bill, but he weren't nowhere near done with his reign of terror. Indeed, by late October, he branched off from Bill Cook and formed his own gang. They hit the little town of Watova on October 22nd, robbing two stores in the post office. And in the days that followed, they did the same over in Talala, just a few miles away. Most of the town was gone, attending a nearby baseball game, so the boys simply walked from one business to the next, stealing everything that weren't nailed down. Things wouldn't be so easy over in Lenapal, however. Although the gang was able to steal a cool $600 from a general store, they took a little too long in doing so. A crowd began milling about the store, so the Verdigris kid fired off a few warning shots, both to keep the mob at a safe distance and as a way to tell his boys inside to stop taking their damn sweet time and hurry up. Well, as you may have guessed, this gunfire draws even more attention. Poor bastard by the name of Ernest Melton was working in a nearby restaurant parallel to the general store, hanging up wallpaper. He hears the commotion and peeks his head out the window and has the misfortune to make an eye contact with our very own Cherokee Bill. So what's Bill do? Well, he shouldered that rifle of his and splattered Melton's brains all over that brand new wallpaper. The boys left town without further incident, but this did cause the federal court over at Fort Smith to up the reward on Bill. I was not able to find out what it had been prior to Melton's murder, but afterwards it was increased to $1,300, or around $45,000 in today's money. Consequently, Cherokee and them others were now being targeted by numerous individuals, two of whom were a pair of deputy U.S. Marshals working out of Sepulpa by the names of Bill Smith and George Lawson. They started working on a former associate of the Verdigris kid, Charles Patton, and offered to split the reward if he assisted in the gang's apprehension. As expected, Patton was able to locate the boys and even hung out with them for a few days before returning to the deputies with valuable intel. According to Patton, Bill had plans to meet with his girlfriend, Maggie Glass, over near Talala at the home of gang sympathizer Frank Daniels. On the day in question, November 16, 1894, a posse headed by legendary Heck Thomas arrived at Daniels' place, ordering him and his family down into the storm shelter as an ambush was prepared. Not long after everyone was in place, Bill and the gang rode up completely unaware of the danger. And had it not been for a trigger-happy deputy, there's a very good chance this would have been the end of the line for old Cherokee Bill. As it were, one of the posse men got a little too excited and opened up the dance before the outlaws were close enough, his round just striking Bill's horse, spilling the young bandit to the ground. According to at least one eyewitness, Cherokee then sprang to his feet and put that Winchester to work, just standing out in the open, firing round after round toward the lawmen. The Verdigris kid, whose real name, by the way, was Sam McWilliams, had his horse shot out from under him as well. And as soon as he hit the dirt, he got up and ran to Cherokee's side. The pair were able to lay down enough of a withering fire to retreat into a stand of timber, and the posse had the good sense not to try to go in there after him. And boy, oh boy, was Heck Thomas pissed. He later told a paper out of Fort Smith, quote, Just to think, after I'd worked for two weeks and spent upwards of $200 of my own money to lose it all because they could not wait. I told them not to fire, but they did and spoiled the game, end quote. Now a desperately wanted man, Cherokee Bill, took a short break. And I reckon he got to feeling a little homesick as he would pin a letter to his sister Georgia, asking her to come pay him a visit. This is the same sister that Bill lived with for a spell over in Nawada. And as you may recall, Bill and his brother-in-law, Mose Brown, absolutely did not get along. 
As such, Georgia pleaded with her husband to stay at home, but he followed anyway. Once they got close to where Bill was, she once again warned Mose, saying, quote, You know that you always mistreated Crawford and was the cause of him leaving home once. And he told you that he would kill you someday if you didn't leave him alone. And you had best not go molest him again. End quote. Undaunted, Mose Brown continued with his wife and, sure as shit, old Cherokee wasn't very happy about it. He asked Mose just what in the hell he thought he was doing there, and in the altercation that followed, Bill shucked iron and shot his brother-in-law dead. Like I said toward the beginning of the episode, you will often find sources claiming that this occurred much earlier, back when Bill was 15 and this was the reason he originally left his sister's home. Or you'll even read that Bill heard that Mose was abusing Georgia, so he hunted him down and then killed him. The version I just recounted, however, comes straight from Bill's niece, Maud Brown, the daughter of Georgia and Moses Brown. In December 1894, Cherokee Bill, Jim French, and another unknown man held up the train depot in Nawada. A few weeks later, Bill returned alone and robbed the same damn train station. Again. I think it's safe to say that, young though he was, Crawford Goldsby certainly was not lacking when it came to nerves. Interesting story I found, uh, one that has not been verified, by the way, so take it with a grain of salt, and it comes from one of these depot agents that Bill robbed. According to the railroad man, there was some old boy that was jealous over the affection that Cherokee was receiving from his gal pal, Maggie Glass. So he started bragging about how he aimed to gun Bill down should the two ever meet. Well, as is the case with many blowhards, he changed his tune real quick as soon as he and Goldsby came face to face. Stop making all that noise as if he was some sort of mean little ass kicker. Not only did Cherokee Bill disarm the man, but he also forced him to get down on his stomach and start eating grass. I'm not kidding. The would-be tough was stuffing grass into his face as fast as he could as Bill left him with a warning. If I ever hear about you carrying a gun again, I'll kill you. Legend states that this guy never again went healed for the rest of his life. Now speaking of Maggie Glass, unbeknownst to her, she was about to become a pawn used in the capture of her beloved. And the man doing the using was her own uncle, a Cherokee freedman by the name of Ike Rogers. Ike was a pretty fascinating guy in his own rights. Born in the Cherokee Nation as a slave, likely around the year 1844, at some point Rogers either escaped or obtained his freedom and enlisted with the 1st Kansas Volunteer Infantry Regiment. He mustered out of the service in Arkansas in October of 1865, moved back to the nation, and was an on-again, off-again deputy U.S. Marshal for Judge Parker. I did find some indication that Ike worked with Bass Reeves from time to time, but I was not able to verify this. If you're really interested in learning more about Ike, one of his ancestors, Nika Smith, has done a lot of research not only on him, but the Cherokee freedmen in general. I'll put a link in the show notes, but you can find several blog posts by Nika at whoisnikasmith.com. It's pretty good resources there. Now that said, despite being a sometimes lawman, Ike Rogers was also on somewhat friendly terms with Cherokee Bill. Story goes that Maggie Glass's parents didn't approve of Bill, so when the two wanted to hook up, they sometimes did so over at Ike's place. There's also speculation that sometimes Rogers would aid Goldsby in his crimes. Not sure if this holds water, and I don't know if they were the best of buddies or anything like that. What's for certain is that they absolutely knew each other, that Rogers was Maggie's uncle, and despite Ike's time as a deputy, Bill did at least somewhat trust the man. At least as much as an outlaw like him could afford to trust anybody. And it is this trust that would be Cherokee Bill's ultimate undoing. That and his own confidence. And you'll understand what I mean by that very shortly. Now, whether Rogers was persuaded to turn Benedict Arnold on his own volition or not is up for debate. Some folks speculate that the law used Ike's possible criminal activities as a way to induce him to help capture Bill. 
you know, help us out and we'll pretend like we don't know what you've been up to. Others think Rogers was simply swayed by all that reward money. Whichever way it shook out, we do know that Ike was given a new commission as a deputy U.S. Marshal on January 10th, 1895. The plan was simple. Rogers would invite both Cherokee Bill and Maggie over to his place to celebrate Maggie's 17th birthday. Once Goldsby let his guard down, Ike would pounce, take the young bandit into custody, and then turn him over to those two deputies I mentioned earlier, Bill Smith and George Lawson, who were waiting over in Nawada with bated breath. To assist in the capture, Ike enlisted his neighbor and former federal posseman, Clint Scales. Clint was to stake out the cabin, wait for Bill to arrive, and then drop by all nonchalant and spend the night. A tactic I have employed on women in the past with varying results. In this case, though, it worked out pretty much as planned. Cherokee Bill arrived at Ike Rogers' cabin shortly after dark on the night of January 29th, 1895. And a couple hours later, all smooth-like, here comes Mr. Scales. Unfortunately, though, for him and Rogers, Bill wasn't letting his guard down. They may have had the much younger man outnumbered two to one, but it soon became abundantly clear that Goldsby wasn't just going to deliver himself up on a silver platter. Hell, he wouldn't even let go of that rifle at the dinner table, just sat there eating with it resting on his lap. And when Ike tried to offer Bill some whiskey laced with morphine, he wisely refused. I think we can safely say that Cherokee knew something was amiss. Hell, even Maggie picked up on it and, when the two were alone for a moment, begged for Bill to leave. A supplication that he refused. Said he was going to let Ike make the first move and then show him how long it took to kill a man. After dinner, the fellas played cards till around 4 a.m. and finally called it a night. As Bill laid down, he did so with the Winchester gripped firmly in his hands. And throughout the rest of the night, if one of the other men so much as moved in their bedding, Cherokee would instantly sit up, rifle at the ready. The sleepless night turned into day, and everyone gathered to have breakfast as Ike sent the birthday girl Maggie over to a neighbor's place to buy a couple of chickens. It was now or never, I reckon, and it weren't long before Bill finally let his guard down, just for a split second. The three was all sitting in front of the fireplace, he and Ike and Clint Scales, when Cherokee rolled himself a smoke. Searching in his pockets for a match, he came up empty-handed, so he leaned in close to the fireplace looking for an ember. Big mistake. Soon as Bill had his head turned, Ike Rogers grabbed a fire poker up off the ground and sent it crashing down upon the young outlaw's head. According to Ike, he swung with enough force to kill an ordinary man, but I reckon Cherokee Bill wasn't exactly ordinary. Although momentarily down, he sure as hell wasn't out. Both Rogers and Scales hopped on top of Bill, but it wasn't no use. The determined young man was still able to power himself up to his feet and let loose with a primal scream. Luckily for them, Ike's wife was able to swoop in and grab his rifle as Bill thrashed about like a wild man, with Rogers and Scales just holding on for dear life. Finally, they managed to slip a pair of handcuffs on him. And if only for a moment, the adolescent terror was subdued. At first, Cherokee offered them money if they'd let him go, and when that tactic failed, he just began cursing both of them up and down, calling them everything but children of God. And damned if he didn't continue to struggle. So much so that on the wagon ride into town, he actually broke his damn handcuffs and made a mad rush for Scales' rifle, causing Clint to fall backwards out of the wagon as Ike held Bill at bay with his scattergun. Finally, they arrived after what I assume was an extremely tense journey and delivered the notorious Cherokee Bill over to deputies Smith and Lawson. Once there in town, the outlaw was credited with telling a newspaper reporter, I wouldn't be here now if it had not been for men who claimed to be my friends. You boys didn't do me right. Sure didn't. I am 19 years old and I was born and raised in the Cherokee Nation. I've been on scout for several years and was never caught before. I would not have been caught this time if I'd have listened to the girl. 
She told me I'd better not stay at the house, but I thought I could whip both of them if I got a show. But they knocked me down with a club instead of going after guns. And then when asked if he ever saw any of the marshals who were after him, Bill responded, Nah, I never saw any of them except when smoke was coming out my gun. If they'll just put me on the prairie, I can whip any 10 deputy marshals in the territory. So as you can see, Cherokee Bill was certainly not a happy camper, and he was still brimming with defiance. By the way, if you've ever seen that famous picture of him standing amongst a throng of men with a cocky smile on his face and his hands in his pockets, that photo was snapped right after his capture, either there in Nevada or over in Wagoner on their way to Fort Smith. The guy standing off to the side to Bill's left with the number one marked on his hat is Ike Rogers. He would have been standing closer, but Cherokee refused to have his picture taken with him. Instead, throwing his arm around Deputy Marshal Dick Crittenton and saying, Here's someone that stood up and fought me like a man. Reference in that time that Dick and the posse came gunning for him over at Effie's house when he and the cooks were trying to collect that money. The photographer snapped the picture and then Bill made a go for Deputy Crittenton's holstered pistol. Luckily, the guard stopped him before he got a good grip and then they secured his mischievous little ass in shackles and chains and plopped him on a train bound for Fort Smith. Cherokee Bill would never again experience life as a free man. Of course, that didn't mean he was done killing. Not by a long shot. Bill was captured on January 31st, 1895, and he still had over a year to live. A year that would see the young bandit stand trial before the notorious hanging Judge Parker. Isaac Parker was only 36 years old when he assumed the role of federal judge over the volatile U.S. Western District Court of Arkansas in 1875. And believe it or not, the former lawyer appeared to have initially bit off more than he could chew. The court he inherited was highly corrupt. His predecessor was run out of office for accepting bribes. Federal commissioners and clerks were under fire for embezzlement. And a slew of marshals and lawyers had already been axed as well for pretty much the same offenses. Not only did Judge Parker have to restore faith in a broken system, but his jurisdiction also included Indian Territory a breeding ground of desperados, ruffians, sidewinders, dry gulchers, and ne'er-do-wells of all stripes. And despite the reputation that Parker would one day garner when it came time to condemn his first man to death, a 19-year-old guilty of murder, the judge did so reluctantly, the weight of the decision causing him to weep. In short succession, Parker would sentence five additional men to the gallows, and these five, along with that first 19-year-old, were all hung together in a mass execution just five months after the judge took to the bench. Less than a year later, another five would drop, and, well, I reckon over time, Judge Parker got used to it. No longer did his eyes water when he doled out that ultimate and final judgment. Through a career that lasted over 20 years, Judge Parker would try an astonishing 13,490 cases, over 9,000 of which resulted in a guilty verdict. And of those guilty, 156 men and four women were condemned to hang. Although, due to appeals, the number of those executed was only at around 80 or so. Still, that was enough of a body count to earn his honor the label of the hanging judge. And it was in hanging Judge Parker's court that young Cherokee Bill soon found himself standing. Now, when Cherokee Bill was processed into jail there at Fort Smith, it was like a little mini homecoming. There were already plenty of inmates who he knew just awaiting for him with open arms, including his old buddies Bill Cook and Henry Starr. And if that last name sounds familiar, it's due to Henry being the kind of sort of nephew of Sam and Bell Star. And just like Cherokee, Henry was locked up on murder charges. Luckily for Bill, his mom had secured the absolute best defense attorney in Fort Smith, 
guy named J. Warren Reed. And that's a J is in the initial, the letter J, period, Warren Reed, which is how you know he was a good litigator. Anyone cocky enough to begin their name with an initial is full of just enough shit to sway a jury. Unfortunately, there ain't no fancy name that can stop a guilty verdict in Judge Isaac Parker's court. And buddy, back in them days, justice was a swift affair. Bill was indicted in early February 1895 for the murder of Ernest Melton, along with a few counts of robbery. The murder trial began at noon on February 26, lasted till 10 p.m. that night, and the next morning, the jury returned with a guilty verdict. Goldsby initially smiled at the judge's words, but was caught up short after his mother and sister, who were in attendance, broke into sobs, spurring Cherokee to ask him, What's the matter with you? I'm not a dead man yet, not by a long ways. A little over two weeks later, Bill officially received his sentence, also handed down by Judge Parker, and no surprise here, it was death to be carried out on the 25th of July, 1895. Now this is where that fancy lawyer really began earning his keep. J. Warren Reed filed an appeal all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and he also appealed to then-President Grover Cleveland himself, with the president agreeing to review the case. As such, when July 25th rolled around, Cherokee's conviction was still under appeal, so he did receive a stay of execution. That said, he wasn't exactly just sitting around in the clink twiddling his thumbs and leaving his fate in the hands of other men. No, sir, make no mistake about it, Crawford Goldsby was still very defiant and still making moves to secure his freedom. Just a couple weeks prior to that stay of execution, the jailers there at Fort Smith located nine 45 caliber rounds in Bill's cell during a surprise inspection. They also found a fully loaded revolver stashed in a bucket of lime in one of the bathrooms. Woo, crisis averted, right? Yeah, well, maybe. Or maybe Cherokee had him another pistol hidden there in his cell that the guards didn't find. A thirty-eight stuck between a loose stone that he had pried from the wall. Oh boy, here we go. Like I said, Bill's rendezvous with death came and went without him meeting an executioner on account of that appeal. And the following day, July 26th, the scourge of the Cherokee Nation finally made his move. It seems they had them a routine there at the jail. The guards would normally let the prisoners mingle in the common corridors until lights out around 6.15 p.m. But due to the stifling summer heat, that time was postponed until 7. Now, each prisoner had their own room all to themselves with cross-barred steel doors. When that 7 p.m. call came, they were to step inside their cells and close the door behind them. A guard at the entrance would then pull a lever that caused a long bar to drop and fasten the closed cell doors from the top. Two additional guards, only one of whom was armed, would then enter the corridor and make sure that each prisoner had fully closed their doors, at which time the guards would lock each one separately. Thing is, that long bar up top could easily be jimmied open, as it was on the night of the 26th by an unknown culprit. In other words, any inmate whose door was not yet locked by the guards could simply walk on out. As the screws made their way to the cell next to Bill's, they noticed that someone had stuffed a wad of paper into the keyhole, and this momentary distraction was all the opportunity the Cherokee needed. He shoved through his cell door, which, remember, was still unlocked, and pointed that contraband thirty-eight at the armed jailer, a guy named Lawrence Keating. Now say what you will about Mr. Keating, but he weren't no coward. The nervy guard went for his gun, but sadly it was no use. Cherokee had the slip on him, and that was that. Bill fired several times, and Keating went down. At this point, the remaining jailer, the one who was unarmed, took off running, and Bill fired at him as well, but he missed, likely due to another inmate chasing after the guard with a broke-off table leg that he was swinging like a club. 
The other guards heard the gunfire and came loaded for bear, pumping lead down the narrow corridor and driving Bill and the others back to their cells. In no time flat, the entire jail became so thick with gun smoke that couldn't nobody see shit. But that didn't stop either side from continuing to fire. Hell, Cherokee Bill, according to one account I found, wasn't even aiming, just sticking his pistol outside that steel cage and popping off rounds towards the guards. And as crazy as this may sound, he was also letting loose with turkey gobbles every time he shot that 38 of his. Now, this is new to me, and please fact check this for yourself. Also, if you're a Cherokee, a real Cherokee, hit me up at josh at wildwestextra.com and let me know how true what I'm about to say is. But supposedly Cherokee warriors would indeed employ this strange war cry during battle that resembled a mix between a turkey gobble and a coyote howl. And this cry was often used as a sign of defiance. Story goes that one guy over at Fort Smith even used this turkey gobble war cry as a legal defense during a murder trial. Apparently, some dude gobbled in his general direction, so he pulled out a gun and shot the man dead, saying that in his culture, such a sound was considered an immediate threat to his life. As such, he reacted accordingly. Is this true? I don't know. Like I said, I found a few sources claiming as much, and it is also mentioned in Art Burton's excellent book, Cherokee Bill, Black Cowboy, Indian Outlaw, but I would be curious in seeing some original sources. I have no doubt there were several cries sent back and forth between Bill and those guards, but some tells me that most of them weren't fit for the gentle sensibilities and virgin ears of my audience. Now, I'm not sure exactly how long this gunfight lasted. Reports state that no less than 100 shots were fired, but it did soon devolve into sort of a standoff. Bill certainly wasn't dumb enough to step outside his cell, and I guess none of them guards got paid enough to walk out in the open, so things quickly turned into a stalemate. Enter in Henry Starr. He called out to the screws and said that if they'd hold their fire, he'd go get Bill's gun. And sure enough, that's exactly what he did. Remember, the two men knew each other from back in the day, but even still, it was touch and go for a moment. Cherokee told Henry that he was going to kill every damn white man in sight and that he'd kill him too if he came any closer. Starr was undeterred and pressed on, appealing to a part of Bill that even the most hardened of criminals are susceptible to, his mama. Your mother don't want you to kill no more than you already have, Bill. Why hurt her more? Believe it or not, this plea actually worked as Bill, with a bit of hesitation, did finally hand over that revolver to Henry, and thus ended the infamous jailbreak attempt of Cherokee Bill. The guards rushed in a moment later. I imagine they gave him a few swift kick to the ribs, and then they spent the rest of the night trying to dissuade the lynch mob that soon came a-calling. Now, in case you're wondering how Bill was able to hold him off with just the six rounds that he had in that 38, it is worth mentioning that the guards found an entire sack of shells there in his cell. So Cherokee was reloading the entire time, and he still had plenty of ammo left once it was all said and done. Had it not been for Starr's intervention, there ain't no telling how things would have shook out. Incidentally, Henry would have his death sentence commuted for disarming Bill. By all accounts, he was a model inmate, and he'd eventually be paroled in the year 1903. Not bad for a man who was sentenced to hang. Someone emailed me recently asking if I'd do an episode on Star, and I absolutely plan on it at some point. Just a really interesting character. Unlike your stereotypical inmates, Henry was said to have been an intellectual who spent his time behind bars reading classical literature, studying law, and even tutoring other prisoners. Unfortunately, he just had a very hard time staying out of trouble when he wasn't incarcerated. After his initial release, Henry would revert back to his old ways and rob a few banks in 1908, resulting in another stint in prison. 
And upon his release in 1913, he did it again, this time getting shot in the process. Starr survived his wounds, spent a couple more years behind bars, and in 1919 was paroled just in time to get into the movie business, starring in a silent film titled Debtor to the Law. Ah, but that life came calling once more. In February of 1921, Starr and three buddies held up a bank in Arkansas, and that's when his luck ran out. Henry was shot yet again, and this time he would succumb to his wounds four days later at the age of 47. Of course, by then, Cherokee Bill had been long gone, but in our timeline, he's still alive and kicking and more than a little upset that his flight from jail didn't work out quite as planned. Some claim that Bill regretted his actions, or at very least regretted not being able to escape, and that he refused nearly all food for several days. He also failed to accept blame for Keating's death, saying that with all the bullets flying back and forth, it could have been anyone who killed the jailer. By the way, it still does remain a mystery as to who snuck those guns into the jail, but a good guess would be Lou Shelley, the wife of outlaw Bill Shelley. Bill and his brother John were arrested in the same week as Cherokee Bill by former topic of the Wild West extravaganza, Frank Canton, and it's said that Lou snuck the weapons in inside her shawl. She, along with the Shelley brothers, would be indicted, but nothing ever came of it. Cherokee Bill himself would later confess that it was a trustee who brought the guns in, but that was never proven either. Now remember, Bill had already received a death sentence for the murder of Ernest Melton, but since that was still under appeal, they had to try him all over again for the killing of Lawrence Keating. He was found guilty, sure as shit, and he was once more sentenced to hang. At the trial, Judge Parker addressed Bill by saying the following, Cherokee Bill, you revel in the destruction of human life. The many murders you have committed and their reckless and wanton character show you to be a human monster. You most wantonly and wickedly stole the life of a brave and true man. You most wickedly slew him in your mad attempt to evade punishment justly for your murders. Keating was a minister of peace. You were and are a minister of wickedness, disorder, crime, and murder. You have had a fair trial, notwithstanding the howls and shrieks to the contrary. There is no doubt of your guilt of a most wicked, foul, and unprovoked murder, shocking to every good man and woman in the land. I once before sentenced you to death for a horrible and wicked murder. I then appealed to your conscience by reminding you of your duty to God and to your own soul. The appeal reached not into your conscience, for you answered it by committing another most foul and dastardly murder. I shall therefore say nothing to you on that line here and now. You will now listen to the sentence of the law, which is that you, Crawford Goldsby, be hanged by the neck until you are dead. May the God whose laws you have broken have mercy on your soul. End of quote. Despite these strong words, Bill was granted yet another stay of execution due to yet another appeal, until finally the Supreme Court sent back word that Parker was good to go with that original execution based on the murder of Melton. That's when a third and final date of execution was set for March 17, 1896, St. Paddy's Day. For the rest of Cherokee's incarceration, he was confined to solitary and given nothing but a deck of cards to entertain himself. Reporters would come and try to catch a glimpse of the notorious inmate, but Bill would just drape a piece of cloth over the door to stop their gawking. And I guess Bill did at least somewhat heed Judge Parker's words, or at very least begin worrying about the afterlife, as he would, in early March, begin meeting with a Catholic priest. And on the morning before his execution, he was allowed to see his mother and younger brother Clarence, along with Amanda Foster, that older lady who took care of him when he was just a pup. And the day of the execution was a circus, to say the least. 
A month prior, the U.S. Attorney General sent word that the hanging was to be kept a private affair. The press was still allowed in, as was Bill's family, but any onlookers were barred. Of course, this didn't stop folks from crowding all around the gate, climbing up on top of walls and rooftops. Hell, one building even collapsed. It had so many people on top of it. And a few enterprising homeowners began renting out window space for the morbidly curious onlookers. But still, the show went on. Per reports, Bill woke that morning at 6 a.m. in a cheerful mood, singing and whistling. His mother cooked him a light breakfast, which was brought to him at around 8 a.m. At 9.20, she and Auntie Amanda joined Bill in his cell, followed by the priest, and out of respect, the other prisoners remained silent as Cherokee readied himself. At 11 a.m., it was announced that the execution was being postponed until 2 o'clock that afternoon, as Bill's sister Georgia was on her way, and I reckon they wanted to give her the opportunity to say goodbye before, well, you know. Finally, the time came, and Bill was marched to the gallows, a guard on each side, followed by the priest and various news reporters. As Bill approached the scaffold, he was heard to comment, well, this is about as good a day as any to die. And upon spying his mama in the audience, he greeted her, saying, Mother, you ought not to have come here. To which she replied, I can go whenever you go. The death sentence was read, and when Bill was asked whether or not he had anything to say, he replied, No, sir and then added that maybe the priest wanted to say a prayer. Benediction was offered as Bill stepped forward onto the trap door, his arms and legs bound behind him, and a noose placed around his neck. Moments later, at approximately 2.15, the trap was sprung and his body fell, the noose doing its job and breaking the young man's neck nearly instantly. Just 37 days into his 20th year, he remained hanging for around 12 to 13 minutes before being declared dead and placed in a coffin, which in turn was then loaded onto a train bound for Fort Gibson. Cherokee Bill was dead, and it was time to bury Crawford Goldsby. Now that's one reporter's account of how it all went down. Another, from the Muscogee Phoenix, pretty much relays the same information, only when Bill is asked if he had anything to say instead of no, sir, he replies, no, I came here to die, not make a speech or at least some version of that. Another goes that he said, I came here not to talk, but to die. Proceed with the killing. What his last words truly were, nobody can say for sure. A few days later, Crawford was laid to rest in the Cherokee National Cemetery at Fort Gibson, now known as the Citizens Cemetery, not far from where his old pards, Jim French and the Verdigris Kid, also were buried. French had been killed on February 6, 1895, while attempting to rob a store in Catoosa, and a month later, the Verdigris kid met the same fate over in the town of Braggs, also attempting to rob a store. He was 19 years old. And sadly, Crawford was not the last of the Goldsby clan to run afoul of the law. His younger brother Clarence never forgot about Ike Rogers' betrayal, and the pair finally met up one day nearly a year after Bill's execution. Now, it's worth noting that Clarence was a quiet kid, well-mannered, so he wasn't just going around hunting up trouble like his brother. And Ike, who, by the way, had received $1,200 for capturing Cherokee Bill, wasn't shy when it came to bragging. That said, there are many indications that Ike was in fear of his life. I guess he was expecting someone to try to avenge Bill's death, so in his defense, he was a little on edge. As Clarence confronted him on the streets of Hayden, over in the Cherokee Nation, Rogers was quick to go on the offense, calling Clarence every vile name in the book, shoving the younger man, and even pulling his gun on him. Clarence responded by telling Rogers that if he ever set foot over at Fort Gibson, he was a dead man, 
Well, I reckon Ike didn't pay no mind as the very next day he did indeed arrive at Fort Gibson. He stepped off the train and began shaking hands with a few friends as Clarence approached from behind and put a bullet square in the back of Roger's head, followed by a couple more in the former deputy's torso just to make certain. There are, of course, several versions to this story, with most of them just different on the amount of times that Ike got shot. I'll defer you to a video by Nika Smith, who I mentioned in the previous episode, where she goes over the various accounts of Roger's death. Whether it was three or four or even five bullets, the end result was the same. Ike Rogers was deader in hell and Clarence Goldsby, just like his brother before him, was now a wanted killer. Kind of. I mean, yeah, Clarence obviously committed a crime. There was no question as to his guilt. And there was a manhunt. But it wasn't a very thorough manhunt. The youngster skipped on out of the territory and nobody expended much effort in chasing after him. Clarence would never serve not one day in jail and spend the rest of his life over in St. Louis, working as a porter. And it's in St. Louis where he'd pass away from pneumonia several years later in February of 1911. The big question now posed is why wasn't there more of an effort to apprehend Clarence? After all, Ike Rogers was a deputy U.S. Marshal. Not at the time of his murder, mind you, but, I mean, thin blue line, right? Well, turns out there may be a bit of a conspiracy involved here. Remember, Ike was a Cherokee freedman, meaning that he was mostly black and that his people had once been slaves to the Cherokee. And he, like many other Cherokee freedmen, did not appreciate the way that they were treated by their adopted people, even after emancipation. Rogers even went on record and gave testimony before a Senate subcommittee stating as much. He was very vocal about the mistreatment, and this did not endear him to many office holders over there in the nation. What's more, either the day of or the day before his murder, the city clerk at Fort Gibson issued Clarence Goldsby a carry permit for his gun, the gun he used in the murder, after Clarence came to him flat out saying that he was going to kill Rogers. Maybe by giving Clarence that permit, they were kind of sort of giving the nod for him to remove a thorn in their side by the name of Ike Rogers. I don't know. That's purely speculation on my part. It is interesting, though, to me at least, that Clarence was never brought to justice. Now, Bill's sister, Georgia, was involved for a bit with an old boy by the name of Bud Trainer, And if that name sounds familiar, it's because Bud is thought to be the guy who committed the murder that Ned Christie would ultimately be blamed for. Well, Bud and Georgia had them a son, Marcus, and it doesn't look like the apple fell too far from the tree. In 1916, young Marcus was locked up in Nawada for carrying a concealed weapon and unlawfully discharging it. Well, a few of his buddies came to bust him out of jail, and during the escape, Marcus got his hands on a gun and shot and killed a deputy sheriff. Less than two hours later, a posse tracked Marcus and his pals down, took him into custody, and began preparing to hang him in front of the local Methodist church. The minister intervened and pled with the mob to give the culprits their day in court, and his supplications were effective. Instead of hanging Marcus, they took him back to the jailhouse that he had just escaped from. Well, I guess not everybody was moved by the good reverend as just a few hours later, yet another mob stormed the jail, removed Marcus, and promptly lynched him from a lamppost. He was 20 years old, the same age as his infamous uncle Cherokee Bill at the time of his death. As for Bill Cook, the once upon a time leader of the Cook gang, he was transferred out of jail there at Fort Smith before Cherokee's execution, and he would die in prison in Detroit, if I'm not mistaken, in the year 1900. Old Skeeter Baldwin and Buck Snyder would also be sentenced to decades of prison, I believe in both Detroit and Albany of all places. 
and I was unable to determine if either of these guys made it out or if they just died in prison. If you've got any special insight, please email me and let me know. Josh at WildWestExtra.com. Finally, let's talk about the mystery surrounding the number 13 when it comes to Crawford Goldsby, a.k.a. Cherokee Bill. A $1,300 reward was offered for Bill's capture after killing Ernest Melton. His first death sentence was pronounced on April 13th. He killed Larry Keating on July 26th, two times 13. The trial lasted for 13 hours. There were 13 witnesses for the prosecutors. The jury took 13 minutes to find him guilty, and he fell through the trap of the gallows at 213. By some accounts, he hung for 13 minutes before he was placed in that coffin, and there are those who claim that he killed 13 men. Now, I don't put much weight in any of this. Actually, I put zero weight into it. I think numerology, or whatever it's called, is absolutely 100% a scam. But it did get me to thinking about that Danzig song, 13, specifically the version covered by the late great Johnny Cash. I'll link to it in the show notes, but it's a dark tune about a man born into misery and destined to go bad. Can't help but wonder what Bill would have thought if he ever had the opportunity to hear it. I'd be curious to know if he related to it or not. I also made sure to add it to the Wild West Extravaganza Spotify playlist. I have not forgotten about that. It's still a work in progress, but I will send a link out next week to everyone who subscribes to the newsletter. So if you want to hear the playlist, you got to subscribe to the newsletter. Don't worry, it's free. Link in the show notes or head on over to wildwestextra.com and hit that tab up top that says newsletter. How accurate was the movie The Harder They Fall? By the way, if you haven't seen The Harder They Fall, it's a newer Western available on Netflix that centers around the famous black cowboy Nat Love attempted to avenge the death of his parents at the hands of Rufus Buck and his gang at Desperados. And if you know anything about the real Nat Love, you know that his parents were definitely not killed by Rufus Buck. As such, none of the other depictions of real-life historical characters in The Harder They Fall were accurate either. The movie features pretty much every notable African-American Old West figure that you can imagine. Jim Beckwith, Bass Reeves, Stagecoach Mary, Bill Pickett, and yeah, even our very own Cherokee Bill. It's not meant to be an accurate movie, obviously, or even educational. It's purely entertainment for entertainment's sake. And as far as I'm concerned, mission accomplished. It's a fun movie. Accurate? Hell no. Fun? Yeah, I think so. By the way, spoiler alert. Now, Bill is portrayed by the talented Lakeith Stanfield and shown to be a member of Rufus Buck's gang. He attempts to shoot Nat Love in the back, but Jim Beckworth intervenes and the two square up for a little stand-in-the-street-at-high-noon quick-draw action. Cherokee Bill, being the damn rascal he is, cheats and draws early and kills Beckworth. This causes a full-scale battle to break out, with Cherokee Bill and most of the bad guys getting killed by Nat Love, Bill Pickett, and Bass Reeves. Absolutely none of that is true to real life. Jim Beckwith was dead and buried several years before Cherokee Bill was even born, and had he still been alive at the time of Bill's execution, would have been damn near 100 years old. Stagecoach Mary was up in Montana. I don't think she ever stepped foot in Oklahoma. And let's face it, that tough broad could have handled them all on her own. Bass Reeves, however, certainly was a deputy U.S. Marshal, and he did go into Indian Territory and hunt down bad guys for Judge Parker. He possibly even rode with Ike Rogers on occasion. Or should I say Ike rode with him? But as far as I know, Bass was never on Bill's trail. Truth be told, I think when Cherokee was active, Reeves was temporarily working out of the district court down in Paris, Texas. 
Anyway, yeah, it's a fun movie, but no, the portrayal of Cherokee Bill is nothing like he was in real life. Don't let that stop you from giving it a watch, though. It's definitely worth it if you're looking for a little bit of mindless entertainment. And I think that's about all I've got on Cherokee Bill. I wish I could tell you where and when Britton Johnson was born, but I can't. Truth is, there's very little in the way of cold, hard facts I can share when it comes to the man. As far as I can tell, there's more historical evidence that King Leonidas existed than Johnson, despite the nearly 1,400 years that separated the two men. Other than a marker that's placed near where Britt was killed, and other than an old gravestone on private property, I can find no official records that prove the man ever lived. He's listed on no census, at least not by name and at least not that I could find. He's on no muster rolls or tax forms, nor marriage certificates. Once again, at least not that I could find. The only proof he even existed seems to lay in those plaques that I just mentioned, as well as a whole bunch of hearsay and stories that were passed on down through the generations. And a lot of that has to do with the time and place, as well as the man's ethnicity. Britt Johnson was a black man, likely born a slave. And I'm not trying to make a statement here, so save your angry emails. There just weren't a lot of great records kept in the mid-19th century as far as African Americans were concerned. I think we can all agree on that, right? That said, we think Brit was born in Tennessee, and we think it was around the year 1840. Although I'm leaning more towards 1835-ish myself. It also appears, like I mentioned, that it's very likely Brit was born a slave, owned by the Johnson family whose surname he himself bore. Moses Johnson, the patriarch, moved his family to Texas by way of Tennessee sometime in the 1840s. They were residing in Navarro County by the year of our Lord, 1850. On the census record for that year, James Allen, the son of Moses, is listed as owning a 14-year-old, quote-unquote, mulatto, and a 12-year-old black female. These could possibly be Britt and his future wife, but there's no way to know for sure. The general consensus seems to be that Britt did come to Texas with the Johnson family, so it's possible, if not probable, but who knows. If this was Britt, the common 1840 year of birth is a bit off. By the year 1860, Moses and son James Allen, along with their families, had moved west to Young County, Texas. And although listed on that year's census, they are not recorded as owning any slaves. Several accounts I've found describe that this James Allen Johnson was staunchly anti-slavery and, as such, as soon as he fully inherited Britt and the others, he set them free, or at least gave them a huge amount of freedom without legally freeing them. I did also, full disclosure, find one source that alleges there's a possibility that Britt could be the son of James Allen. Now, I'm not sure there's any evidence for this other than, you know, him being of mixed heritage if that was even him listed as the mulatto on the slave schedule. Who knows? Matter of fact, who knows could be the subtitle of this entire damn episode. Like I said, I could find nothing backing up any of these claims. I cannot stress that enough. There is very little to go off of when it comes to Britt Johnson. As far as I'm aware, there are not even any books dedicated solely to the man. Nonfiction books, at least. Uh, Paulette Giles, the author of The News of the World, wrote a novel based on Britt's life titled The Color of Lightning, but I have not had the pleasure of reading it as of yet. And Britt is mentioned a few times in the book Indian Depredations of Texas, which I will discuss towards the end of this episode. We know that Britt Johnson, by 1864, then likely in his late 20s, was married with children. And if he was still a slave at this point, he certainly did not live a life common to other slaves. Seems that Britt enjoyed a good deal of freedom. He was paid wages by the Johnson family, for example, had his own little spread, his own herd of livestock. 
He often went armed and was, from all accounts, a trusted and respected member of the community. A strange thing to say considering this was Texas in the 1860s. But this particular part of Texas was a bit of an anomaly. Young County, up there in North Texas, about 100 miles northwest of Fort Worth. And in 1864, Young County was very much the frontier. Matter of fact, one could say that in 1864, the citizens of Young County were effectively living behind enemy lines. In a land where every man is expected to saddle his own horse and kill his own snakes, it was the character that mattered most. And it seems that this also held true as far as Britt Johnson was concerned. There was a good deal of respect not only in 1864, but especially in the years to follow, as we will talk about more here in a little bit. First, though, since we're talking about Young County, I did find something I wanted to share with you that I thought was really interesting, something that I was aware of, but I had never seen represented in cold, hard numbers. I decided to look up and see what the population of Young County, Texas was in 1860. The information is readily available online from various sources, and in less than a minute, I had my answer. 592 souls in 1860, 93 of which were slaves. Now, I knew Young County was sparsely populated at this time. So that number, 592, that didn't surprise me. And this was 1860, so okay, 93 slaves wasn't exactly unexpected either. I can only assume that Britt was one of them. It was that next number I saw that really caught my attention. The population of Young County in 1870. Just 139 people, as opposed to the nearly 600 that lived there a decade prior. That's a 77% decrease in population. I know what you're thinking, the Civil War, right? Well, you're partially correct. Young County was home to Fort Belknap, the northernmost out of a chain of military posts that manned the Texas frontier, spanning all the way south to the Rio Grande. And yes, it's true that when the Civil War began, the soldiers posted at Fort Belknap were sent back east to fight. And so were most of the eligible fighting-aged men in Young County, enlisting with whichever side their conscience told them to and marching off to war. Still, though, there weren't no 77% of Young County comprised of fighting men. And Fort Belknap wasn't left completely abandoned. The locals used it, as did a small group of Confederate soldiers under the Texas Frontier Regiment. No, what happened, in reality, was a mass exodus. Left unprotected, the settlers of Young County knew they'd be easy pickings for the hostiles. And as we're about to find out, they were correct. With most of the soldiers and menfolk gone back east, the Comanche and Kiowa began raiding almost at will, leaving these settlers as sitting ducks. So yeah, the people who could leave did so while the getting was good. Those who stuck around till 1870 were either the toughest of the tough, the bravest of the brave, or just the craziest of the crazy. I can't for the life of me imagine trying to raise a family in such an environment. I truly, I can't. According to the website World Population Review, the country of El Salvador currently holds the highest homicide rate of 52 per 100,000 citizens. For context, that's over 10 times higher than it is here in the United States. I would not move my family to El Salvador. I wouldn't take my kids there, not even on vacation. Hell, I'd probably be nervous just visiting by myself. But in the same way that the poor citizens of El Salvador can't just pick up and move somewhere safer, neither could those poor farmers and ranchers of Young County. You know, some of them were just destitute. They had no choice but to hang on to that little plot of land they had. And Lord knows their wives and children and slaves didn't have no choice. By the way, I did look up the population of neighboring Jack County to the east, and they likewise saw a drastic shift in population, although not quite as bad, only dropping about 30% between 1860 and 1870. According to the Texas State Historical Association, it was these raids by hostiles that, quote, led many of the original settlers 
to abandon the area. By 1864, according to county tax records, there were only 31 slaves. In 1865, the county's government was dissolved. In Stephen Harrigan's book, Big Wonderful Thing, he writes, quote, The settlers had bloodily pressed the line of white settlement westward in the years before the Civil War, only to be bloodily pushed back as army protection evaporated and frontier forts were all but abandoned. With few troops to protect them, the people who had staked out homesteads in the most fought-over stretch of prairie in Texas, the clear fork of the Brazos River, organized themselves into militias, conducting their own patrols and raids, and even built their own civilian forts. End quote. As you can see, the citizens of Young County, Brit included, had every reason to be worried. And on October 13, 1864, their worst nightmare came to fruition. It was a large combined force of Kiowa and Comanche. Estimates ranged from upwards to a thousand, but I highly doubt it was that many. Probably just a couple hundred, maybe. Truth is, it could have been less than a hundred, and the outcome would have been the same. Now, I'm not going to go into a long history on the Comanche or their allies, the Kiowa. We had discussed that previously on this podcast, but they were still very much a force to be reckoned with in the 1860s, still very much the lords of the Southern Plains. They had perfected the art of the quick raid, you know, get in, strike fast and hard and get the hell out, disappearing with horses and captives, leaving behind burned out homesteads and grieving widows in their wake. And that is exactly what happened that fall day there in Young County. At the time of the raid, our subject, Britton Johnson, was away on business in Weatherford and had left his pregnant wife, Mary, and three children at the nearby Fitzpatrick Ranch for safekeeping, not too far from Fort Belknap. Now, the Fitzpatrick place, also known as the Carter Trading Post, was home to 38-year-old widow and grandmother, Elizabeth Fitzpatrick, a very interesting lady herself. Elizabeth was a white lady from Alabama who had the gall to marry a black man. And I didn't even know that was a legal possibility back in those days. Unfortunately, that husband was murdered. And by the time 1860 came around, poor Elizabeth had lost two additional husbands. Life was hard in those days, and Elizabeth's life was about to get a whole hell of a lot harder. She was a tough cookie, though. You're going to hear more about her in a little bit. A very, very tough lady who led a very unfortunate life. Other than Elizabeth, Mary Johnson, and the Johnson kids, you also had Elizabeth's mixed-race children. 13-year-old Elijah Carter and 21-year-old Susanna Carter Durkin, who I believe was also a widow, along with Susanna's children, Lottie Durkin, aged 5, and Millie Jane, aged 2. And you also had an unnamed infant boy, a newborn. As for Brit and Mary Johnson, Jim, the 7-year-old, was the oldest. The daughter, possibly named Cherry, was 4 years old. And the boy, possibly named Jube, uh, maybe short for Jubal, was I'm not sure how old. I couldn't find that out. Three women and seven children, alone and unprotected. A target no war party would dare pass up. Story goes that Susanna initially tried to fend the warriors off with a shotgun and was killed for her efforts. Young Jim Johnson broke and ran for safety, but was also cut down before he even got out the gate. The raiders began pillaging and they found that newborn baby boy hidden under a bed, took him and bashed his head into a wall. Guess the bastards had no use for a crying baby on the warpath. The others, poor Elizabeth and her son and her surviving grandchildren, along with Mary and her surviving two children, were unceremoniously trussed and tossed up on ponies and taken. Now, this attack on the Fitzpatrick place was just one of many targets in what's now known as the Elm Creek Raid. Some of Young County's citizens survived by hiding in the brush or caves there in the bank of the Brazos River. 
Others were able to fight back, like the men of the Bragg Ranch, who rallied and counted for several dead warriors, including a chief by the name of Little Buffalo. One of the defenders, a Confederate soldier, was able to break through and alert his fellow brothers-in-arms of the Border Regiment. They gave chase, but there weren't but 14 of them, and five never made it back. One account I found claimed that when the surviving pursuers returned, they was riding double and their horses looked like pincushions, with all those arrows bristling out of them. All total, 11 homes were burned down and over a dozen settlers were killed, along with several being taken captive. Hundreds of head of livestock were stolen as well. And then, poof. Just like that, the raiders were gone. The misery, however, was far from over. Not for those held captive and certainly not for those left to mourn and bury their dead. One of whom was our very own Britt Johnson, returning home only to find that his life had been completely destroyed. His son was already buried by the time he arrived, and his wife and surviving children were among the missing. Can't imagine how he must have felt. I couldn't imagine that now. There's no sheriff that's going to follow after a large war party of Comanche. There was no army. There were hardly any Texas Rangers to speak of, and all the locals who might be willing to volunteer to help, they'd be busy with their own dead, trying to put their own lives back together. Besides, you know how the Comanche and Kiowa do after a raid like this. They travel hard and fast. They split up into dozens of small groups, all going in different directions. Hell, you need a hundred men to follow them effectively. At least a hundred men. And I doubt there was an available hundred men within a few hundred miles of Young County. So Britt made a decision. The type of resolution that I think most of us hope we'd have the nerve to make. He decided to go it alone. His wife was out there, somewhere, taken. And you know damn well what that means. If she was still alive, she probably wished she wasn't, and she'll never be the same again. Your two children are young enough that hopefully they haven't suffered the same fate, but they're not able to keep up to make themselves useful, they'll be done for as well. Britt would have known this. He'd have seen the bodies before, he'd have heard the stories. Stone cold hard truth of the matter was that nobody was going to go rescue his family for him. And knowing as much, like I said, Britt set out alone, deep into Comancheria committed to either retrieve his family or die trying. But he didn't light out immediately, as much as I'm sure he wanted to. The raid took place in mid-October, so Johnson would have to wait till spring. A long, slow winter full of what I imagine was many sleepless nights. In the meantime, several of his neighbors took up a collection. Remember what I said earlier about a certain respect that Britt seemed to garner, despite being a slave? As such, when Britt set off in search of his family, he was well-provisioned. He had a good horse beneath him, good saddle, as well as a pack horse, two revolvers and a Henry repeating rifle, food, blankets, trade goods, and a shitload of ammunition. By the way, other than being a black man, there's not a whole lot in the way of description when it comes to Britt Johnson. I did find a few things, though. In the book Indian Depredations of Texas, Britton is described as having a, quote, splendid physique and a fine expression of face. That's okay, fair enough. And then I found yet another description, this by Dot Babb, who was another child captive of the Comanche who came into contact with Britt, who also said he had a, quote, squinted physique. What the hell, man? How splendid was this dude's physique? So I did a Google image search for Britt Johnson, and holy shit, they weren't lying. Not only did I find a very splendid physique, but also smooth caramel skin, a pearly white smile. I'm not going to lie, one hell of a nice ass. And then I realized I had the wrong Britt Johnson. Uh, yeah, it turns out that uh, while our Britt Johnson was described twice as having a splendid physique, I did not make that up. There is another Britt Johnson, a female sports reporter who also evidently has a uh, splendid physique. But she ain't our Britt Johnson. 
who, like I was saying, was determined to rescue his family. Damn it, let's get back on subject. And by the way, it didn't take him very long at all to make contact with the Comanche. He rode straight to the heart of their territory, alone, not trying to conceal himself. He wasn't riding at night and hiding out during the day, and it ain't like they were hiding out on their own home turf either. Now, there are two separate stories of what happened next. One goes that Britt was able to locate the band that had his wife and children. He gained their trust and even became a member of the tribe, living with them for a while before escaping with his family while pretending to be out on a hunt. Sounds good, but that's not what really happened. Best I can tell is that Britt initially made contact with the lone Comanche who he was able to communicate with using a mix of sign language and Spanish. Soon, some other Comanche showed up, and after a few tense moments, Britt was able to parlay with them as well. He even recognized some of their horses as those taken in the raid several months before, so he knew he was already making some headway. Johnson learned that while this band did have some white captives, it was their Kiowa brethren who were currently holding on to some black folks. Got to imagine that this strengthened Britt, gave him a little bit of hope that these blacks in question were his wife and children. Johnson then somehow convinced these Comanche to let him ride with them for a spell. Even befriended a few of them to the point that they agreed to help him get his family back. Now how much of this friendship was genuine on Britt's part, I can't say. I personally would have had a hard time getting all buddy-buddy with the same bunch that helped kill my son and kidnap my family. But I reckon the dead were dead and he was focused on the living. I also do wonder how much of his survival at this point hinged on him being a black man. This is something that pops up from time to time when reading about Britt Johnson, and there may be some truth in it. He would have been an oddity to the Comanche in Kiowa. He also would have likely came off as being big medicine. These warriors probably thought he was crazy or extremely brave, or maybe a little bit of both. One man, alone, in their territory by choice. He wasn't some stranded traveler or lost pilgrim who wandered into their trap. He was there on purpose. He came looking for them. That's big balls right there, and I got a hard time believing that this wasn't recognized. We know the Comanche respected bravery, sometimes above all else. Whatever the case, like I said, a few of the Comanche took a liking to Brit, and they decided to lend him a hand when it came to getting his family. Unfortunately, Brit was unable to locate his wife and kids on this trip. Wasn't a total loss, though. Not only did he establish a relationship with the Comanche, but he was able to confirm that Elizabeth Fitzpatrick was still alive. He was unable to ransom her, but at least he knew she was there. This wasn't all for nothing. And like I said, the little bit of intel he was able to collect led him to believe that his family was still alive. He also found out that Elizabeth's son, Elijah, was killed shortly after the raid. The boy had grown sick on the harsh retreat and was no longer able to sit a horse. And rather than just leave him, the sons of bitches built a fire and threw young Elijah on it, forced his mother to watch him burn to death. Unbeknownst to either Elizabeth or Britt, little Millie Jane Durkin likely didn't survive the winter either, although she was very close to getting rescued on at least one occasion. Almost a month after she was abducted, Kit Carson left New Mexico with a few hundred men under his command, tasked with punishing the Comanche who had been terrorizing travelers on the Santa Fe Trail. This expedition culminated in the first Battle of Adobe Walls that I covered way back in May of 2021. Link in this episode's show notes if you haven't already listened to it. Long story short, Carson and his men damn near got themselves massacred. What I didn't know, and of course what Carson didn't know, was little Millie Jane Durkin was present at one of those villages that Kit and his men approached that day, hidden away in some bushes. The New Mexicans were forced to flee, however, and that winter was a harsh one. Starvation, disease, and freezing temperatures all formed a deadly combination, and both Comanche and captive alike suffered, and not everybody made it, including young Millie. 
Maybe. Millie's situation is very intriguing, and there may be more to that story, which I will touch on towards the end of this episode. Trust me, you're gonna want to hear it. Like I said, Britt was not able to find his family on this trip, and he was unable to ransom Elizabeth Fitzgerald, and he was soon forced to return to the settlements. Just for a short amount of time, though, I assume he was re-upping on supplies and picking up trade goods. He would return and keep returning. Multiple sources say Britt made at least three solo trips into the heart of the Comanche territory, searching for captives, and other trips with companions. Basically, what he was doing was making his rounds to various bands, learning their way, seeing what they knew, learning how to haggle with the wily Kiowa in case he did come across them. He'd visit frontier forts and trading posts, Indian agencies, anywhere where he could possibly get a lead to where his family was. And in the course of all that, he was also picking up intelligence on other captives, white captives. Legend has it that during all these travels, Britt was successful in rescuing some of these other captives. Although I could find no proof of this, nor any names of these supposed captives that he did rescue. I'm not saying he didn't, just that we don't have no proof. Gotta have proof, you know? If you just go with what the legend says, you'll hear that Britt wandered the Comancheria for years and years and finally snuck in and rescued his family all on his own. And that likely did not happen. Here's what we know for a fact. His family was ransomed and returned to him in June of 1865, eight months after their capture. Okay, we know Britt didn't start searching until the fall, so it's likely he was only out there on the hunt making all them trips for about four months. Once again, there's a few different versions of exactly what happened, but it appears that a friendly Comanche chief named Asa Havey helped to make this happen. And of course, not a lot of info on Mr. Asa Havey either, but he does appear to have been one of the signers on the Treaty of Tehucana Creek in 1846 and a member of the Pinateca Band of Comanche. Either on his own or with Brit, once again, sources differ. Asa Havey was able to secure the release of Mary Johnson and her children, as well as Lottie Durkin, Elizabeth Fitzpatrick's young granddaughter. And this reunion occurred possibly near present-day Verdon, Oklahoma. Now, I tend to think it was both men working together and that there was a bit of treachery or trickery involved, as the Kiowa were said to hold a grudge thereafter, even threatening to kill Brit if they ever caught him alone. And I don't think Brit secured the rescue alone because literally every version has a friendly Comanche helping him. There's got to be some truth in there. One of the few sources backing up the claim that Brit had a hand in securing his family's release comes from Samuel Kingman, a lawyer who was present during an Indian council in Kansas in 1865. According to his diary or journal, if you want to get all manly about it, a quote, black man from Texas came in today and reports that he has redeemed his wife and two children from the Comanches, giving them seven ponies, end quote. Now, likely, you know, he got Comanches and Kyle was mixed up. Whatever. One thing is for certain. Britt never gave up, and he had balls of steel. And in the end, he was reunited with his family. And as much as I'd like to say they lived a long, happy life, well, it may have been a happy one, but it weren't very long. The same month that Britt had his family restored to him, something else interesting happened there in Texas. Federal troops arrived in Galveston and finally freed the slaves. The war had been officially over for two months and the Emancipation Proclamation in effect for over two years. Yet many slave owners in the Lone Star State were reluctant to give up what they considered their property. These Union troops put an end to that, taking control of the state and ensuring that all enslaved people were finally given their freedom. This happened on June 19th, now a federal holiday known as Juneteenth. 
I don't know how aware Britt was to any of this, but probably he heard about it. One thing is for sure, though. Whatever his slave status was when he set out in search of his family, by the time they were reunited, they were all free. Not only from the Comanche, but also their white slaveholders as well. You know, as good as he may have been treated as a slave, he was still a slave. He was still another man's property. And there's just no easy way to swallow that, you know. Moving forward, Britt and his newly liberated family relocated to Parker County, where he started his very own freighting business. And believe it or not, he continued to travel into Indian territory in search of captives. I think this is where a lot of the respect you'll see for Britt really comes into play. The dude just seemed to have no fear when it came to putting his life on the line. First for his family, then for the families of others. Britt was seen by Dot Babb, who I previously mentioned, sometime after the young man's capture in 1865. Unable to secure the boy's release, however, Dot did mention that Britt seemed well-received by the Comanche and that he was, quote, moving among the Indians, trying to secure captives, end quote. Special Indian Commissioner Vincent Kayla reported that Johnson spent a week at Fort Cobb in 1869 looking for a captive girl, possibly the Durkin girl. Fort Cobb, by the way, was located near present-day Anadarko, Oklahoma, not far from where Britt was able to secure his family's freedom. So yeah. Britt Johnson was moving around quite a bit, doing freighting and teamster work, supporting his family, and evidently helping to rescue other captives, allegedly never asking for money in return. Once again, take it with a grain of salt. Lots of legends around old Britt Johnson. But there's got to be some truth in there, though, as I did read that more than once. Finally, Britt's time would come. Nobody's luck lasts forever, right? You can't tempt fate as long as he did, constantly venturing into enemy territory without finally getting hit. And if there's any lingering question as to Britton Johnson's courage, well, all one has to do is take a look at his final stand. It was November 1871. Britt would have either been in his early 30s or around 35 years of age. So young to have lived such a full life. And man, that's how I know I'm getting old, that I think of somebody in their mid-30s as young. Now, ironically, Britt was traveling through Young County when he bit the dust, not far from where the Elm Creek Raid occurred all those years prior. He and two other black men, Dennis Curitan and Paint Crawford, were hauling freight. Now, this was six months after the Warren Wagon Train Raid, also known as the Salt Creek Massacre, that I spoke about on the episode I did on Kiowa Chief Satanta. Link to that episode in the show notes as well, but it does kind of give an idea of the trouble brewing in Texas at that time. It also tells me that Britt and his companions knew what sort of danger they were in. By the way, there were a dozen men there with that Warren Wagon Train, seven of whom were killed. Britt would not have the luxury of all those extra guns. Matter of fact, he would have the luxury of no extra guns. According to eyewitnesses, the Kiowa struck so quickly that they killed Britt's two companions almost immediately, leaving him to fight alone. Being the savvy frontiersman he was, Britt cut his own horse's throat and pulled it to the ground and started using it as a breastwork. And it was there, behind the saddle, that Britt made his last desperate stand. I don't know how long it took for them Kiowa to finally put old Britt under, but I do know it weren't easy. Once his body was recovered, it was found surrounded by nearly 200 rifle shells. He was also heavily mutilated in a manner that suggested his killers were a tad on the angry side. They gutted the man and stuffed his dead dog inside the empty cavity. He and the other two were scalped, but their scalps weren't taken, just discarded on the ground. Now, like I said, there were eyewitnesses. Another group of freighters who witnessed the ordeal from afar. And they do back up these claims of bravery. Their account, coupled with a large amount of spent rifle shells, attests to the fact that Britt Johnson did not go gentle into that good night. 
And I can't help but wonder what he was thinking there in his last moments. Did he know he was done for? I mean, at some point he had to know. Do you think of his boy who was killed seven years prior? Think about how he was about to be reunited with him? Did he mourn his wife and living children, wonder if they'd know what happened to him? Wonder how they'd make it without him? Or was he just an autopilot, too busy to contemplate his situation? Who knows? No telling how many Kiowa he took with him either. I'm willing to bet it was more than a couple. I found an article on history.net that I think makes a good point. It reads, quote, An obituary published in Texas newspapers lionized him, him being Britt Johnson, as a noble-hearted man and a stranger to fear, who would go alone on foot into Indian camps and either steal or ransom white children whom the Indians had taken into captivity. These acts of chivalry, all uncompensated, seemed to be his delight. He succeeded in getting three white children not long before his death. Researchers have not been able to confirm these later rescues and Johnson's last journeys may in fact have been unsuccessful. If the stories about his courageous feats were in fact exaggerated, the obituary reveals that the myth-making had already begun during his lifetime. End quote. Well put. You know, we do tend to enjoy our myths, especially when it comes to Old West history. I know I get a lot of angry emails every time I bring up race, but it's an undeniable part of life, so you can't just ignore it, all right? That said, for a population of white people in Texas in 1871 to think so highly of the man, to respect him enough to pin such an obituary, speaks volumes. We'll likely never know the truth when it comes to the fine details of Britton Johnson's life, but it's an inspiration nonetheless, to me the least. The man had guts and he lived his life in such a fashion that proved it. And he sold his life in such a fashion as to garner respect and admiration where such weren't given away freely. As far as the Kiowa who did him in, one source claims there were 25 warriors being led by a Mammon T, a.k.a. Swan, also known as Skywalker. He was a medicine man and an active participant in the Red River War and was one of nearly 30 Kiowa prisoners sent to Fort Marion in Florida. And it was there that he would die in July of 1875, possibly from dysentery. I guess he wasn't as good at the Oregon Trail video game as I am. Now, for the big question. In this episode's intro, I teased that Britt Johnson was possibly the inspiration for what some consider to be one of the most important movies ever made. And if you haven't guessed it yet, that movie was The Searchers. The Searchers is considered to be one of the most influential films of all time, and one that many critics cite as the greatest Western movie ever made. The story revolves around a man named Ethan Edwards as he searches for his young niece who was taken captive by the Comanche, a rescue mission that ends up spanning years as he tracks one band or another, visiting frontier posts and Indian agencies, all the same stuff that Britt Johnson did, just doing whatever he can to locate his niece. And if you've seen it, you know how it ends. Great movie. But was The Searchers really based on the life of Britt Johnson? You already know what I'm going to say, right? Maybe. After all, Britt wasn't the only man on the Texas frontier searching for his captured relatives. Another notable searcher who was successful was a man named Jesse Chisholm of Chisholm Trail fame. Another was a guy by the name of James W. Parker, uncle to Cynthia Ann Parker and great uncle to Quanah Parker. James was there for the Fort Parker massacre. He was one of the men working in the fields when the Comanche struck. Before he and the others were able to stop the raiders, they were gone with James's daughter, Rachel, his grandson, sister-in-law, and his niece and nephew, Cynthia Ann, and her brother, John. Although James's sister-in-law and daughter were ransomed back eventually, the Comanche did kill his grandson, and he understandably had a lifelong hatred for the tribe. 
similar to the hatred portrayed by John Wayne's character in The Searchers. And James Parker did venture alone into Comancheria, just like Britt Johnson, and a good 20 years or more before Britt Johnson. The Fort Parker raid was in 1836. Britt Johnson, if alive at the time, was only a baby. And Parker didn't even have the luxury of repeating rifles or revolvers back then. By 1845, Parker, completely broke and with his wife fearing that he'd be killed, stopped these solo excursions, but he did continue to contribute financially when he had the money to those who kept looking. He knew his niece and nephew were out there somewhere, and he won them back. Also, the rescue at the end of The Searchers greatly resembles the real-life quote-unquote rescue of Cynthia Ann Parker by Texas Rangers. Furthermore, the movie was adapted from a novel of the same name, written by Alan LeMay in 1954. And he did visit the Parker clan in Texas while doing research and seemed very interested in the story of James Parker. Okay, well, by that account, it sure sounds like the movie was based on Parker more than it was based on Britt Johnson. Not so quick. James Parker and the story of the raid on Fort Parker was just one of the many abduction stories that author Alan LeMay studied. 64 stories all total. I mean, there was just no shortage of stories when it came to families being torn apart by Comanche those frontier days in Texas. I highly recommend a book called Captives by Scott Zesch if you'd like to read more on them. Anyway, evidently, per surviving notes from LeMay's research, Britt Johnson was his primary quote-unquote searcher that he leaned on for inspiration. I have not seen these notes, so I have no idea what they do or do not indicate. I'm just reciting what I've read. But yeah, this is one of those things where it's obviously a mix, right? There's no indication that Britt was obsessed with revenge, as was John Wayne's character, nor did Britt want to kill his wife like the fictional Ethan intended to do with his niece. The Searchers really is a good movie, by the way. I watched it again last week. FYI, it is currently available on HBO Max if you have a subscription. But I already know some of y'all old school cats have that hoe on VHS. And we're going to talk more about that movie here in a minute. But first, I got a lot of loose ends I want to touch on real quick. So let's finish up with Britt because we all got things to do. After his death, he and his co-workers were buried right there where they fell in a common grave. That grave site is now on private property. There is a grave marker. However, that is not the actual location of Britt Johnson's grave. The real location is an undisclosed secret. I'm not sure if anybody living actually knows where it is, but if they do, it's well protected and has been passed on down through the generations. And it's a good thing, too. Despite being on private property, more than a few grave diggers have been caught trying to sneak away with any macabre souvenirs they could find. I spoke with a guy who I'm not going to name here because I did not ask permission and I have no way of verifying his story, but I spoke with a man who knows the landowners, or so he says. They have supposedly even had to chase away grave diggers that were so bold as to bring a backhoe on their property, trying to dig up Brit's remains. And that is beyond weird to me. Let the man finally rest. He did enough for Texas. Another thing, Brit had himself a nickname, and it's not a name that I can uh, repeat on this podcast. A few older sources will refer to Brit Johnson as Negro Brit. And, well, let's just say that's the family-friendly version of what he was actually called. You know the word. All right, so what happened to Britt Johnson's wife and children? I got no idea. I've searched and searched and searched, and I can't find anything. I was hoping to find Britt's 1870 census record at least, but I guess he was just on the move too much. I don't know anything about Britt's wife other than her name was Mary. 
We don't know how her captivity went, how rough it was, how she was able to adjust to society again once she was returned. You know, I'll say it again. She was black. There just weren't a lot of reporters or authors lining up to find out what black women had to say in 1865. And it's a damn shame, too. A lot of lost history due to situations just like this. Britt and Mary's two children that survived were named Jube and Cherry, I think. I could not find any Jube Johnsons on Ancestry in Texas during that time. I did find a few Cherry Johnsons who were black females, but none that really lined up or that I could find living with a Mary Johnson. Or any Mary. Of course, Mary could have and likely remarried if she survived her husband. I don't know. If you're a Britt Johnson expert and you have answers to any of this stuff, please, please contact me wildwestextra.com and hit that contact button. If you're an expert genealogist and you need a project to work on or a challenge, contact me as well. I think this might give you a run for your money. Let's find out what happened to Mary and her children. Let's find out where they were buried, how long they lived, what kind of lives they lived afterwards. Let's find out if Britt Johnson has any living descendants. Of all those others who were taken captive during the Elm Creek Raid, they were mostly all recovered. Remember, you had Britt's family that got uh, ransomed along with Lottie Durkin. Elizabeth Fitzpatrick was held in captivity by the Kiowa for just over a year before she was ransomed as well. Once rescued, Elizabeth was taken to the Call Mission at Council Grove, Kansas, where she took care of other recently released prisoners. For the next 10 months, Elizabeth did this, working tirelessly as a nurse, fighting on behalf of recent captives to secure their health care. Seeing to it that the other survivors had safe transportation back to their homes, doing whatever she could to help. And she never gave up hope for little Millie, the granddaughter that supposedly froze to death that first winter. She believed the girl was still alive and even thought she might have gotten a glimpse of her at some point in a Kiowa camp. Now, if you'll remember, Elizabeth Fitzpatrick was a three-time widow before she ever hit the age of 40. Then she witnessed her children killed and grandchildren stolen. She endured a year of God only knows what as a captive. I mean, she was pregnant when she was ransomed, by the way, if that tells you anything. The baby, unfortunately, was stillborn. Upon Elizabeth's return to Texas, she gave marriage a try once more. And once more, she became a widow. She lived until 1882, and as recently as just a few years before her death, was still right in the office of Indian Affairs in Washington to report that her granddaughter may still be living with the Kiowa. That poor woman, man. The hell she endured during her life and she never gave up hope. Something tells me she probably touched other people's lives as well. All those other captives that she helped, the children and broken women, people more broken than even she was. I got to imagine she was a shoulder to lean on for her other granddaughter, Lottie Durkin, as well. Speaking of Lottie, the youngster that Britt allegedly ransomed with his family, she may have been the last surviving member of the captives taken from the Fitzgerald spread way back in 1864. You can actually find a picture of Lottie online as a young woman. The Comanche evidently tattooed her up pretty good, including her forehead, and that forehead tattoo is visible in the picture. She and her grandmother were reunited, of course, and in 1874, at the age of 15, Lottie got married to a town marshal in Fort Griffin, ended up having a couple of kids, and moved to Tescosa, Texas. Had another child in July of 1887, but sadly there were complications. The cholera took her newborn son, and the quote-unquote childbirth fever took Lottie a month later. She was 27 years old. And that's about all of them. You know, other than Brit's family, but they don't count because they were black, I guess. Seriously, that's the only explanation I can think of as far as the lack of any sort of historical knowledge we have. 
If you haven't figured it out, I really want to know what became of them. There may be a chance that another survivor outlived them all. Remember Millie Durkin, the grandchild that Elizabeth thought was still alive. Remember how I said she was hidden during the Battle of Adobe Walls, so close to being rescued and then probably died that winter of exposure. Well, an elderly woman named Millie Goomby, or Goombai, came forward in the year 1931 with one hell of a claim. She said she was the missing Millie Durkin, granddaughter of Elizabeth Fitzpatrick. She would only live another two years, but if that's true, that's a pretty crazy story. Mrs. Goombi, or Goombai, was raised Kiowa. She had a Kiowa husband. She was Kiowa in every sense of the word, culturally. But there's a lot of pictures of her online, and she sure as hell does look white to me. Her children claim she was a quarter black, which would back up her claim further, as her grandfather, Elizabeth's first husband, was a black man. Either way, very interesting stuff. And finally, as if you needed any more apocryphal or probably not true claims, you have the fourth child of Britt Johnson. Remember, Mary Johnson was supposedly pregnant when she was taken captive. We haven't talked about that baby yet, have we? Well, here we go. During the Great Depression, the Works Project Administration did an oral history interview with a guy named John Johnson, who claimed to be that child. Said he was born in December of 1864, but that he wasn't ransomed with his mother and that he continued to live with the natives for another eight years. According to a lady named Christy Clarity in her very interesting article on Britt Johnson that I'll link to, there are a lot of holes in uh, Johnson's narrative. I couldn't find out any more info on John, but it looks like his story may be told in Life Among the Indians, the WPA Narratives by David Laver. And I don't know, man, John Johnson sounds a little bit too much like Crentus the Dentist, if you ask me. Oh, and by the way, how crazy is it that the Durkin girl, if that was her, was still alive in 1931? Which made me think, do we know who the last surviving captive of the Comanche was? Well, I started looking, and it could be that that distinction is held by a Bianca Bab Bell, sister of Dot Bab, who you heard me previously mention. She and her brother were taken captive by the Comanche in 1866 when she was just 10 years old, and Bianca was held for about seven months before being ransomed. And she lived all the way to 1950. Just think. If she lived another six years, she could have celebrated her 100th birthday party by watching The Searchers. Speaking of The Searchers, one of my favorite scenes is at the very beginning when the good Reverend slash Texas Ranger captain shows up. The whole house is alive. Everybody's moving back and forth, hollering and talking. The whole time they're trying to serve him coffee and breakfast. The whole thing seems like it was filmed in just one take. It's a great scene. I don't know why I like it. I just do. Did you know that the guy who plays the captain, Ward Bond, was only 53 years old when that movie was made? Yep. Guy looks like he's at least 60. Men just aged different back in those days. Uh, turns out he and the Duke were lifelong friends, despite John Wayne accidentally pulling a Dick Cheney and peppering Ward with a shotgun during a hunting accident. That shotgun, by the way, was later willed to John Wayne after Ward Bond's death, proving that the man had a sense of humor. I love The Searchers. It's a great movie. I can't stress that enough. I love the character of Mose. I love the authenticity of some of the scenes. You know, there's a lot of stuff they couldn't show on screen back in those days, but they do a very good job at hinting the real atrocities. I will say this about the searchers, and this is going to be a very unpopular opinion that nobody else agrees with, but I do believe the movie is overrated. Once again, great movie. There's no doubt about it. I enjoy watching it. I've seen it a dozen times. I'll watch it again. I'm a huge fan. 
I know it's an influential movie. It even is supposed to be the inspiration behind Robert De Niro's Taxi Driver, one of my favorite movies. But I don't believe The Searchers is the greatest Western ever made. I wouldn't even put it in my top 10 list. Yet somehow it is consistently rated as the best Western of all time. Now, I think that's a little pretentious. I think it's one of those things that people feel like they have to say in order to lend credence to their other opinions. I know you're cracking your knuckles right now getting ready to fire off a strongly worded email. Tell me how wrong I am. But deep down inside, you know I'm right. And honestly, I don't know why you just want to admit that Unforgiven is the greatest Western movie of all time. I know it, and you know it. So stop fucking lying to yourself. The Searchers isn't even John Wayne's best movie. That would be the shootest. And it's not the greatest collaboration between John Wayne and John Ford. That would be the man who shot Liberty Valance. Coincidentally, the shootest and Liberty Valance also star the late, great Jimmy Stewart, who, a lot of people don't know this, was himself captured by the Comanche as a child and held until the age of 12. And a lot of people don't know that because I just made it up. All right, a few more clarifying remarks and we will wrap things up. Once again, I want to stress how hard it was to piece together the story of Britt Johnson, as well as what exactly happened at the Fitzpatrick Ranch. Earlier, I said that Britt's son, Jim, made a run for it and he was killed before he made it very far. Other sources claimed that two of the hostiles were arguing on who got to keep the boy, so in order to settle the dispute, he was simply killed. There's also a couple of tantalizing hints that a strange red-headed white man was with the Raiders when they struck the Fitzpatrick place. If this is true, who the hell could that dude have been? Look, if you find any of this interesting, I would really suggest looking more into the Elm Creek Raid. It's very fascinating. Lots of tales of heroism that day, you know, from the defenders at the Bragg Ranch to those Border Regiment Confederates who took chase to the many brave men and boys who made Paul Revere-like raids to warn other settlers. It's a miracle that there were only as few killed as there were. You know, had the Comanche and Kiowa really dug in, they could have killed 10 times as many. As it were, they were too smart to do kamikaze-type operations or waste time with long sieges. These warriors wanted to get in and get away with as many captives and with as much loot as possible, with as few casualties as possible. Speaking of the dead, every source has a different number. 11, 12, 14, 16. How many Comanche and Kiowa took part in the raid? 200, 500, 1,000. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it probably definitely was not 1,000. If there were a thousand Comanche and Kiowa on the warpath, they could have kept going and taken the entire damn state. Could Britt Johnson speak Comanche? Who knows? Many sources say he could, and that this was not his first rodeo with the hostiles. I tend to think that he probably could make out a little bit of their tongue by the time he was reunited with his family, but there at the beginning, it was probably a little bit of sign mixed with Spanish and a little bit of Spanglish that got the job done. At the end of the day, here's what we know. A black man, a former slave by the name of Britt Johnson, was highly respected and attempted to retrieve his family who were taken into captivity. They were reunited, and seven years later, Britt was killed by that same tribe, the Kiowa. By all accounts, he was a heroic, capable man. All the other details I've tried to piece together, all of it that has to do with Britt, there's no way of proving it. There's likely a lot of truth in there, but we just can't prove it, and sometimes that's just how it be. Regardless, I found his story very interesting. And if you have any additional info on any of this, if you're a member of the family who owns that land where Brit's buried and you want to give me a tour, hint, hint, or if you just want to tell me how wrong I am, please don't hesitate to go to wildwestextra.com and hit that contact button. 